Blog Talk Radio. It's time to strap our boots on. This is the perfect day to die. Wipe the blood out of our eyes. In this life there's no surrender. And there's nothing left for us to do. Find the strength to see this through. Our main guest is Brian O'Shea, uh, former intelligence officer. 
And we got Samuel Mangold Lynette, and I guess he was the editor of The Federalist, and he's on The Daily Wire. Stuart Battle, which I enjoyed him a few weeks ago. He, um, of course, I like the uh, LaRouche group and what LaRouche, a lot of the principles LaRouche holds. Um, yeah, I got some interesting news from California that I think relates to the show. Um, there's a, a local friend here that uh, found out the charter schools, uh, which are state paid, by the way. It's like homeschooling, but it's a mix. But the charter schools are having uh, Chinese awareness classes, like Chinese sensitivity classes. Like, wait a minute, why aren't we having uh, sensitivity classes about, say, France or Ethiopia or Argentina? Um, we're doing Chinese awareness slash sensitivity class. Who is paying for this? What is their motive? Where is this coming from? I want to ask Brian that later in the show. Um, so, yeah, we uh, I want to kind of build a bridge because I believe there's some allies here, between, uh, Lennett and, and Mr. Battle and Mr. O'Shea. Um, I think there's a lot in common, the security of America. There might be some differences in their views on, on China and or Russia. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think there's friendlies here on this line. So I met Brian O'Shea. I want to go ahead and introduce him. I met him with the COVID-19 research team, I think, over a year ago. I've had many conversations with him um, personally over the phone, of course. I can't put the phone down. What this guy knows is absolutely amazing. So I'll go ahead and read you uh, Mr. O'Shea's bio, and then uh, for people that called in by phone uh, versus the Bard's Logic website. So, um, Brian O'Shea. Brian has spent almost 30 years in the fields of corporate investigations and various disciplines in intelligence. Brian started his career in the U.S. Army's Military Intelligence Corps, working for two special forces groups throughout the Middle East, North Africa, and throughout Southeast Asia. Upon leaving the military after 11 years of active duty service, Brian worked as a senior consultant and subject matter expert for two of the U.S. government's largest intelligence agencies. His areas of expertise include corporate human capital, due diligence, intelligence operations, and assessment recruitment, propaganda and counter-propaganda, competitive intelligence, and more. He has been a guest speaker at numerous corporate and business intelligence seminars and has been an instructor for courses focused on social engineering, information, patient, self-defense, covert surveillance, and counter-surveillance, as well as counter-espionage. He has taught or spoken in these subjects at numerous libertarian student organizations, mainly in Eastern Europe. He also was a guest instructor twice at the Human Rights Foundation's Oslo Freedom Forum in Oslo, Norway. Brian holds three undergraduate degrees and a Master of Criminology, focusing on white-collar crime, from Boston University. He's also a graduate, graduate of the Modern Standard Arabic two-year intensive language program at the Defense Language Institute, Foreign Language Center at the Presidio of Monterey, California. Brian is married to the nonfiction author and civil liberties activist, Dr. Naomi Wolf, and the two of them live in both New York and Massachusetts. So with that said, I wanted to uh, say hello to Brian. Thank you very much, Brian, for filming the show. Go ahead. Okay, great. And is the sound good? I'm actually at um, a mountain-type uh, home of a, a friend of ours, um, so I'm using their uh, 
their, their spare room. Um, but you guys can hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Yeah, we can hear you pretty good. Yeah, Wonderful. so do you know some people okay, in well, the uh, LaRouche, the LaRouche organization? You know, I, I may. Um, where I recognize uh, the organization when you had brought it up is I'd seen uh, LaRouche organization people getting attacked um, a couple of years ago for something that to me sounded pretty logical. I thought the attacks were a bit unfair, but I, I don't know much uh, about them. And again, it's one of those things where um, someone might pop up. Like I mentioned it to my wife today. She's like, oh, yeah, I know this person, this person, this person. So. Oh, yeah. So tell us about your travels and your experiences when you worked uh, in the military and intel. Um, oh, it sure. sounds like you travel um, all over the world. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting that I actually did more travel for uh, private industry when I got out of the entire intelligence apparatus, uh, working in something called competitive intelligence. But for the military side, um, I did three years of training for a four-year enlistment when I went in, two years of language and a, almost almost a year of electronic warfare and intelligence training. After that, um, I re-enlisted, and I ended up in 5th Special Forces, which is, um, and if people don't know the difference between SEALs and all that, when you talk about Army Special Forces, you are talking about the Green Berets. I was not a Green Beret. I was in the Military Intelligence Detachment, and, you know, we were each attached to different Green Beret type of of, uh, uh, teams. Uh, So for that, I went pretty much all over the Middle East. Now, the difference is we used to go to places even if there wasn't like an official, like a big war, like Desert Storm or something like that. We were were going all the time, either for training or to train host country people, to do joint exercises. My first overseas jump uh, was with a king of the country that is well known. I'm just not sure if I can say which one. Um, But is very, very cool. I mean, that's what you join the Army for, partially. Um, and then after that, I, I re-enlisted and ended up in some strategic units that supported intelligence agencies, and then um, ended up at first Special Forces, which mainly deals with Southeast Asia, places like Thailand, Korea, Philippines. I spent a lot of time in the southern Philippines after 9-11. Um, and then... Uh, got out uh, after that and went right to D.C. with my clearance, which was a very hot market in about 2003. Wow. So I'm, I'm going to guess oh, you still have contacts and intel and stuff. So let's jump into, you know, the current thing is China and Taiwan are kind of bickering and threatening. You know, Taiwan is a Taiwan Strait. So China is declaring the strait is theirs. You know, what's, what's really yeah. going on with China? Yeah, what, what's going on with China and Taiwan? Well, in my in my opinion, and, and you know, based on my research, and based on a lot of people's research, you know, I think this is less about reunification. I mean, that's you know, as as like Steve Bannon would say, you know, that's the noise. Um, I think the signal is uh, the signal is basically that's you know, ninety percent, give or take, of the basic uh, semiconductor like the you know, the basic ch- chips before they're etched, you know, specifically, they come out of Taiwan. I mean, 90, close to 90%. Now, for people, most people know this, but without semiconductors, you can't even run a refrigerator. So what's interesting about that is China 
has a, a you know kind of a, a stated campaign or goal I, I don't know what you'd call it called made in china 2025 and if they take taiwan they, they pretty much own um the semiconductor market which means they pretty much own the manufacturing and possibly even the supply chain market um of the world and that is to be followed up by you know something xi jinping had referred to as the china dream of 2049 which for lack of a better description that's the plan to rule the world do they want to rule the world or do you think be a superpower or both i think they are a superpower um a lot of people don't want to say that out loud because they are still listed and they still enjoy the benefit of being technically a developing nation at the, um, you, you know, at the WTO. So they get all the benefits of being a, you know, like, you know, a developing country while they have tons of money, tons of technology, whether they invented it or stole it. Um, and they've done both. So, you know, I think people won't, you know, I don't think they want to be a superpower as they already are a superpower. Um, and from everything I've seen, I see nothing that says that they want to share the world, that they want to make the world good for communism. But, you know, this is China stated, and I'm paraphrasing in one speech way back when, you know, all flowers or sunflowers or something like that must look to one sun, <laughs> you know, and I think that that's pretty obvious what that means. Uh, so, no, I think to summarize that very long answer, this is China wants to rule the world. Oh, my. Okay. So Chinese, the China want the microchips and the semiconductors from Taiwan, which goes into the computers. Years ago, I had a ZTE phone, just a cell phone, and it was oh, cheap, yeah, yeah. so I bought it. I later found out it was made in China, and that China was listening in on American conversation. So mm-hmm. one way to perform espionage, if you will, or gain technology is through cell phones and possibly listening in. Um, let's, let's just jump into a corporate espionage, okay? Remember years, uh, was a year and a half ago, <clears throat> there was a Chinese national that was arrested in Florida airport, and he was working for a corporation, and he was going back to China. Well, the FBI got him and found several USBs in his pocket with a lot of, um, well, at this point, blank stolen American technology. Um, mm-hmm. So, are you seeing that in a bigger picture, Chinese? You mentioned this, but not just in China, but other nations. Are the Chinese basically stealing technology, manufacturing it, sending it over here, and other nations? Um, yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much it, and it's well documented. Uh, you know, a great example is the one you brought up, but also if you look at like, for instance, and and. You know, I got to credit this to General Robert Spalding, retired U.S. Air Force, who wrote a great book called Stealth War, um, where they, the just seen on TV or, or as seen on TV products, they they fabricate almost all of those, and then you'll find you could be selling those products that you made and get that just as seen on TV branding, and you'll see the same exact product with as seen on TV at the booth next booth over, and they they don't enforce our copyright laws. Uh, they, they're not beholden to them, and no one does anything about it. Or, for instance, they will fabricate entire stores on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon Marketplace, 
um, sometimes you'll order something that says cheaper at these other vendors or also available at other vendors. And then if you look closely, you go from Amazon to Amazon Marketplace. Well, Marketplace is you're, a lot of the people on Marketplace are going to be small businesses selling things, but a ton of them are these Chinese fabrications, digital storefronts, um, where you're, you're probably buying a counterfeit product. And what makes it worse is that it's cheaper to send something from Beijing to Washington, D.C. via the U.S. Post Office uh, than it is for someone to send something from Baltimore to Washington, D.C. versus the U.S. Post Office. They have a deal. There's a deal with Amazon, and through Amazon, Amazon's mar- marketplace, that cuts right into that, that, that market of, of kind of retail products um, and mass. Wow. Well, I remember I applied for a patent uh, many years ago, 2005, 2006, and there was another guy. He had filed and successfully gotten a patent. <laughs> Excuse me, a patent. And a patent attorney told me, too, basically, what you want to do is as soon as you've, you've got to get your marketing plan together, you've got to get somebody to manufacture, you've got to raise your funds, because what the Chinese do is they go onto the United States Patent Office, the website, they download a patent, they reverse engineer it, and they manufacture it. So if you're mm-hmm. going to invent something, and you, what you have to do is you have to be first to market to get a brand name out. Right. So you get not just filing the patent and you're, you hit a home run. You've got to get everything ready to go so you beat your competition by marketing. And the competition, you know, again, this is like what, 2005 or six. You have to beat the Chinese here in the American markets. Yeah, I mean, no, that, that is very well put. That is very yeah, well so put. There, yeah, so Afghanistan, we pulled out. All right. Who moved in, and what were they seeking? Well, from what I've seen in Afghanistan, um, and I was obviously I wasn't there when we uh, abruptly and, and you know, sorry to say, hor- in a very horrible manner, pulled out um, of Afghanistan. What you're seeing now is China is they've got full blown mining operations, and it's they, it seems like they did. Uh, prior to us pulling out of lithium mining to make lithium batteries, um, a massive, massive operation. I, you know, I also want to back up and say if you go to a lot of like Kabul Times and things like that, and just you know the government of Afghanistan website uh, in July of 2021, you can see there's increases of exports of semi-precious minerals which they don't specify in these reports, and I, I have all these, and I've, I've posted all these, to China. There's increases to China. It should also be pointed out that during the entire evacuation of Afghanistan, the Chinese embassy never closed. They never closed their gates. They, never, they had nothing to worry about, clearly. And now they're you know, not only working with the Afghanis, but also Pakistanis are in-country in Afghanistan, with the Chi- with the Chinese Communist Party geologists and the, the people mining and everything. Well, so basically, rare earth elements for and lithium for electronics. Um, is is China in Africa and say other nations like this? I mean, do they come in peacefully? Like, like they're hey, we're here to do business and we want to trade with you. Do they, they just? 
What what are they doing in other nations? I guess. Oh, fantastic question. So, to really understand, and and you know, I, I'm not a China scholar. I'm a you know, I'm I'm an intel guy, if you will, you know, which is very similar to an investigative reporter. My problem is I'm a bit ADD and also OCD at the same time. So once I start going down a thread, I go down it and I know what to look for. And my time in the intelligence community lets me. It really allows me to know who the players are, and reading between the lines, and, and what's important um, in terms of how an article is written. So with that said, um, the, the key thing to understanding how China is, and in my opinion, accomplishing this goal of world domination, for lack of a better term, is something called the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, what the Belt and Road Initiative is, and I'm, I'm going to make this, uh, I'll just kind of really make this basic. Uh, it's not too complicated, but in the interest of time, that is a program where you align with China on an infrastructure project or you need an infrastructure rebuilt or you need help. You're poor. Let's say you're Djibouti, for instance. Um, you, you, know, you don't have a lot going on. You had the U.S. Navy for a while. They were doing their bombing drills there. But you have um, – so you have um, – in comes China – and, you know, by the way, when I say China, just, you know, because, you know, social media can be, I am referring in this conversation, I'm always referring to the Chinese Communist Party. Um, that, you know, the, uh, the people of China, they're, they're, they're in the worst position of all. They don't have a choice and they're stuck there. Um, so with that said, um, they'll come in, and these are these no payback massive loans, right? No payback loans. Now, if you look at the fine for these, there's, certain stipulations, certain things you have to meet. For instance, you know, providing a secure environment for whatever infrastructure thing has been built or, um, you know, all sorts of things. And then magically there's always, there's a terrorist attack. There was one in Ethiopia and the, you know, the engineers remained Chinese, even though the Ethiopian people who were were trying to learn Chinese because they were promised these jobs, they never become the engineers. They never run anything. It remains in China, and I don't have my notes in front of me, but recently, um, and this actually even made, surprisingly, The Daily Show, um, China took over the airports of, I forgot, the, the African country, all the airports of a certain country because they fell short of their, their promises of the Belt and Road. And you can go online and just, in quotes, type in Belt and Road Initiative. China's not hiding it. They have a website. and. From the look of the website, it looks like more than 50% of the world is in line with this. I believe Italy has some thing going on with it. I know I believe it was Eastern or Western Australia did. It's insane. And what happens, you see it just spreading without a bullet fired. And, and, and that is so classically a, a Chinese way of doing warfare. Yeah, there's a um, – real quick, Brian. Real, real quick, Brian. Yeah. Uh, and then, then I'm going to bring in uh, Stuart in a little bit. But yeah, there's actually a map on the Council on Foreign Relations website mm-hmm. that, you know, covers the route, you know, of the, the Belt and Road. And it's, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it goes all throughout, you know, Europe and uh, East Asia. And it actually goes around the waterways because it does involve waterways as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it goes totally over the top of, of pretty much all of Russia. And then, you know, the uh, Scandinavian countries. I mean, it's, 
It's pretty wide. I mean, it pretty much takes them to the entire eastern hemisphere of the world. Yeah, you've seen it, yeah. But that's what I'm talking about. And, and there's many more facets to this form of what is, you know, popularly referred to as you know, unrestricted warfare. Um, and I, I, I won't go into that now. I know your, your guest is coming on and uh, looking forward to talking with him. So let's go ahead and uh, bring in yeah, – was there anything else you want to have for bring in uh, – Oh, no, no. I just want to make sure I didn't lose the signal. Sure. Let's go ahead and uh, bring Stuart from uh, the LaRouche organization. Uh, thank you very much, Stuart, for coming in. How are you tonight? Hey, Robert. I'm good. Can you hear me okay? Yes, uh, great. Yeah, I can hear you well. Thank you. And then uh, we've got also, uh, tonight we're going to bring also uh, Samuel uh, Manuel-Gwinnett from The Blaze. Uh, to be interested in what kind of uh, stories he's been, you know, Thing on, you know, the place and what uh, people are paying attention to uh, in regards to, you know, China, Russia, you know, what's going on over there. Uh, but, yeah, go ahead, uh, Stuart. So, you know, we've had you on the show, you know, a couple of times, and I didn't want an interest of, you know, the group organization in, you know, what's going on from Stoughton Road. And does it sound like this is a different take than what you guys are seeing? Hey, Robert, it's, it's kind of tough to – I don't know if anyone – I'm having a tough time hearing you. Can you um, – it's almost like your uh, microphone was away from your. Is this better? Okay. Yeah, that's a little better. Yeah, I, yeah. Think, I, was too, I, I think I was too close to my mic. <laughs> I need to get away from. I guess I need to step away from the microphone a little bit. I'll get that's, a, that's when you know you've been doing a podcast too long when you you got a too close relationship. <laughs> <laughs> with, yeah, with with your mic. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's hilarious. Um, no, so, I mean, and again, we've talked many times about, you know, the, you know China and what their motivations may be. Uh, and it's just the one, what I hear from Brian and then, you know, what we've heard from, you know, when we had conversations, you know, about what the, you know, the Belt Road's about and what their intentions may be. I mean, does it sound like it is very differently from, from your take, or what do you think? Um. Well, yeah, I would definitely um, respectfully take some different um, stances than Brian. And, um, you know, one thing I definitely would agree with Brian on is that the, um, you know, well-documented or, you know, so-called well-documented popular opinion is is not on my side. And um, I know that very well. Most um, mainstream and even non-mainstream um you know, journalists and media are are certainly um, saying that China is, you know, our leading adversary. Actually, the um, NATO for the first time uh, acknowledged, and I think it was last year, where the U.S. NDAA and the, cha- the, the new Pentagon security doctrine as well and announced that China was, and Russia at the same time, um, are now official adversaries, which is a new term um so anyways i what i'll say a couple things in response i actually would rather say a couple other things unless you want to kind of ask or you know more particular responses but um yeah i don't really think that anything um that brian and you guys were saying uh 
evinces that China wants to take over the world. Um, I, I'm sorry to say, I just don't. Uh, I think that the semiconductor thing is is obviously, um, you know, it's a very touchy subject. It's it's uh, the most intense intensely probably intensely geopolitical industry or one of the one of them um in taiwan is in a very interesting position um and uh similarly with a lot of you know uh cobalt lithium a lot of the rare earth minerals a lot of other raw materials these are you know china certainly is buying up um a lot of these i don't think that there's any um thing that is shown from that or what's been said that that shows whatsoever that there's a uh, um, conspiracy to take over the world. Um, <laughs> it's kind of uh, like when a, when, a, uh, when a conclusion is desired or imagined, then, um, then things are found to, for justification. And um, and I think we should caution ourselves from thinking like that because, as I said when I was on a couple of weeks ago, these are, um, you know, these mean nuclear war. Um, if the U.S. and China or the U.S. and Russia get into get into a situation, um, for example, Nancy Pelosi in July asked for Russia to be put on the state sponsors of terrorism list, which right now only North Korea, Cuba. Iran and um, Syria, I believe, are on. You know, you're looking at a direct, you're the increasing a direct confrontation between nuclear superpowers, and I think that we should be, um, I think we should be much more careful, and a little bit more um, oriented towards how, you know, um, a dynamic situation as opposed to try to. Um, like find a perfect category to either put a na- another nation or another gr- group of nations or, or what have you, you know, obviously China is communist, at least, you know, at least that's the title of their party, um, and try to like label them either friend or enemy um, or, you know, this kind of black and white thing. Cause I think it's, um, you know, it just, it just leads to lazy thinking. So anyways, I have, I have a lot more I could say, but maybe you want to, Say something else, Robert? Or... Well, specifically, and I hope you guys can hear me better now since I'm not, you know, kissing my microphone. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> no, 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 specifically, I mean, you know, there, there are things that have been, you know, said and, and you're talking about positioning. I mean, what has Xi Jinping, you know, you know, you know, stated or, you know, what do you think their intentions are that is pointing in a direction where they just want like a world cooperative where they are trying to actually raise up these economies of these other nations and, you know, creating, you know, just an increase in economic level for, you know, everyone, like they say, you know, a high tides raise all ships, you know, because it sounds like that's what they, what they believe, you guys believe the intentions are, but, you know, what evidence is there that that is the case? Yeah, okay. Um that's a great question. Um, so I think that the first honest way to start this kind of discussion is to look at this question of disinformation um, 
uh, fact-checking and the narrative, the, so, the quote-unquote narrative, which has become the major, you know, talking point generally the last, especially under Trump, especially since Trump, it's become, it's just taken over. Uh, but certainly it's continued after Trump's been gone. Um, and so I just want to say something real quick. This, today we just found out that Helga Zeplarouche, who is the, um, the, the head of not the LaRouche organization, but our, our international sister organization called the Schiller Institute, Helga Zeplarouche was put on a list called the Mirovets list, which is the official Ukrainian government kill list. And there's been a, at least a couple dozen people who have been on the list who have been assassinated since the Ukraine war began. And she was just placed on that along with a fellow named Harley Schlanger, who, um, who is our, um, one of our spokesmen, um, an American who's a spokesman. Um, what's interesting is that the web domain for this Ukrainian kill list and the, spon- the, the people who sponsor it and, and have, written it is in Langley, Virginia. And the in the the domain name is NATO. It's NATO.int, I think, if I remember right. Um, so um the reason I say that is that the idea that there is some kind of international situation that's divorced from the for example the FBI raid on Trump a couple weeks ago is just, you know, naive. And the development of these things, especially in something like Ukraine, but I'm sure this stuff is going on in many, many countries where George Soros and others run regime change operations and what they call color revolutions, um, which is what happened in Ukraine. That's the, that's the um, context since 2014 of the, uh, the coup in Ukraine. Which is which is playing out, you know, today in Ukraine. But um, to keep that act going, what's been done is that the the weaponry, so to speak, has been turned on the American people, and it's not necessarily guns and cannons; it's information warfare. And what we're in the middle of writing a report on is in 2012 there was a bill that passed the Congress that. Um, it was, it was, I forget the year, but it was somewhere in the early half of the 20th century. There was a, there was a law that had been in place that there can never be psychological warfare, um, used against the American people, you know, from the CIA and other, you know, whatever intelligence agencies have been in our history, that that was prohibited, that we could never utilize our means of psychological warfare and cognitive warfare capabilities that the CIA and others have, have developed against the American people. And in 2012, that was repealed with, this, with, a, with a bill that was passed. So if people think about, you know, there's a lot of things you could say. You could, if you think about Russiagate, if you think about um, the whole fake news thing, if you think about... Um, you know, Hunter Biden, various email scandals. Think about um, what was less publicized, but the uh, chemical weapons uh, rhetoric around Syria, the chemical gas attacks that were blamed on Bashar Assad. And um, I don't remember when that was, 2013, I guess, was the first one. 
um, which later came out to be shown to be a, a fake. The videos were all faked. The official um, OPCW, International Organization for the Prevention of Chemical Warfare, or chemical weapons, they they said it was a fake. There was no evidence that there any of this happened. So these, but but at the same time, these information tactics, information warfare tactics, were turned were deployed for internal American consumption, and I think that has to be the question. One just to basically acknowledge anything about Russia, China, or any other nation which you know we're about to go to war with, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, for obvious reasons. But secondly, um, if you consider what's been done to, um, for example, spy on and surveil heads of state around the world, including our allies, like the German chancellor, who was a scandal a few years ago about her being spied on, um, manipulation of currency markets, oil markets, different manipulation for economic advantage, um, not to mention the wars that have been, um, I know this is a generalization, but by and large, complete failure, complete failure in foreign policy as far as um, interventionist warfare has been the last 20 years, then you have to consider the criminality of American foreign and domestic policy as integral to any nation's response to a world with a, with a, you know, Western, you know, so-called liberal order, especially American led liberal order, because there, like Brian was saying, there are, there's, there's almost 150 countries that have joined the Belt and Road. All, you know, they're all mixed. It's, It's very mixed. It's not the same all around, but, um, I referenced when I was on a couple weeks ago that Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, went to South Africa a few weeks ago to basically get the South African, you know, government to to back us against Russia, um, and also told them they need to to uh, ease up on China on their working with China. And this dude was read the freaking Riot Act by the South African Foreign Minister which if you watch the video and you look at what, how these, um, you know, how this, and she was a woman, by the way, uh, lecturing Tony Blinken. Um, she just said, we don't listen to anybody. We are a sovereign nation and we would appreciate help and assistance, but we are not here to be lectured at. That's what she said. We are not going to be lectured at. And you've got this increasing response, which, um, Again, I would say it's, you have to consider the criminality of American policy, especially since 9-11, but really going back to the death of Kennedy. Um, if you want to have any idea how to analyze, you know, different countries, especially big countries like China or Russia or India and their reactions against a world which is increasingly going insane, um, you know, with America in the lead, unfortunately, very unfortunately. But um, so anyway, that's what I'd say. I think we have to talk about that before you talk about Xi Jinping in a box, if you know what I mean. And uh, Brian, did you want to respond to that? And then we'll bring in uh, Samuel. Well, 
Yeah, first and foremost, very well said a lot of your points. And I, I agree with almost all of those points, especially in the last two uh, last year and a half, um, almost two years regarding the misinformation, disinformation from our own government um, and going many years back. But that's obvious. I mean, just, you know, do the math when our president speaks, <laughs> you know, and so, um, and I totally agree with that. Um, I think there was a lot of embellishment to, to I, I feel we, to some degree, instigated uh, a lot of Ukraine and really amplified that. A lot of people don't realize that the FAA put a no-fly, like, uh, a warning over Ukraine because Russia and Ukrainian border skirmishes back in, you know, you know back in early um, 2021, I believe, April. Um, so, yeah, I agree with all that. What I, you know, respectfully, what I, I don't agree with is I don't think China's, um, based on a lot of their own words, that they're, they're uh, you know, 7.9% increase almost on average in military spending. Um, their continued uh, dominance and, and influence grabbing over our own, own media. Um, I don't think these are reactions to being worried about uh, crazy America. It, they could be, but then it's the most offensive defense I've ever seen. And the reason why, and, and I just want to just, and I, I have a feeling that I was thinking about this, um, you know, for the last few days prior to this, when you think of warfare, and, and most people do, that most people think of kinetic warfare, you know, just force on force warfare. Um, China does, and, you know, I'm sure you're very familiar with this, you know, China does seem to be following the 1999 kind of poetic and flowery worded uh, unrestricted warfare of doctrine. And the first rule of that doctrine is basically, and again, forgive me, I am paraphrasing a lot of this, um, that everything's a battlefield. And they even list the types of warfare, and this is how you, you gain your dominance. This is how you uh, make China make China great again, um, for lack of a better uh, slogan. And so when I when I see China's actions, when I see the aggression uh, that they showed under the Obama administration in the Philippines, and we did not even enforce our agreements to the Philippines uh, to protect as China massive fishing fleets moved into their wa- territorial waters and fish them dry. Um, and they do this, like the fishing fleets alone, for instance, these are these massive armadas of everything from heavy ships to like little boats that come right in and they've reached as far as Ecuador where they're illegally fishing waters and no one can do anything about it. And to me, that doesn't, um, you know, as a, you know, as a person who's studied you know, warfare, especially I studied a lot of Soviet warfare because I, I joined the military in 92 and that was our most recent example. Um, but what we, what I see is, is, is an ag- very aggressive actions by the Chinese Communist Party going as far back as 2003, um, but really more recently like the actions in Hong Kong. That was a total disregard uh, for the way that was supposed to play out. They just took it. Um, nationalizing um, their waterways recently. That was very, and, and just their own words, when they're telling the U.S. president, you know, you'll face the fire or whatever, you know, their uh, 
MOFA, Ministry of Foreign Affairs um, spokesman at that. Um, and you see these aggressive actions, so you, you have to look a little, you know, I'll say I have to look a little deeper. You guys know what you need to do. But you see when, when someone goes to war throughout history, as we all know, there's a reason, okay, and there's a need a lot of times. And so to your point, I, I agree with the fact that this part could be a reaction, but China's biggest problem is food, and, and, and that's it. I mean, their biggest problem is food. And when you look at their investments in U.S. Uh, agriculture just this year, it's amazing. But you look at the, the top ten exports that come from the U.S. to China are soybeans, are certain grains, starch, pork, um, ethyl alcohol. I mean, these are major, major uh, exports that they depend on, animal guts, parts, whey, milk products, and they're running out. Their own arable land is diminishing in China. Uh, you know, I don't, I'm not a, I'm not one of those uh, eco-science guys. So I don't really know why that's happening, but I can, I can say this is happening. Um, so for instance, and, you know, and this was um, reported on by the, um, the USCC, if you go to uscc.gov, and that's the United States Senate, um, uh, the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, um, which is a bipartisan um, you know, study that's been going on for years on China. When you see their aggression in how they're dominating the biotech industry, mainly through the acquisition of DNA sequences right down to individuals, uh, 23andMe, these genealogy sites, you know, these things are all dumping into the Beijing Institute of Genomics, which has grown huge in the last few years. And so when I look at warfare China, I'm not looking at, okay, they're, gonna, they're making a lot of ships and a lot of tanks, and they're going to attack us. What I'm looking at is on every front, as if you're playing a game of Go, which is the Chinese, not Chinese checkers, but Chinese, I guess, chess, for lack of a better term. You know, this game is about surrounding uh, encircling actually your enemy and, and, and taking over you know all the spaces on the board you, you surround a marble you remove their marble and you're seeing that happen um, and a big marble will be um, the semiconductors but beyond that um, fishing they've, they've shown this you know their, their desperation for more food the acquisition of agriculture agricultural land in the US um, and so there if you know, again, to, to my point, there, if it is a defense, and, you know, none of us really know, really only China knows, but based on the pattern, based on the 1999 loose doctrine uh, written by two Chinese colonels, don't ask me to mispronounce their names, um, called unrestricted warfare, they're hitting every single facet of the types of warfare listed in that document, you know, and again, it, it could be refuted, it could be contextual, but to me, it's kind of like where there's smoke, there's fire. And when you're hitting every single uh, point of warfare that you said you would, to me, smells like warfare, looks like warfare, probably is warfare. And I, I could go into more detail, but I don't want to uh, hog the mic too much. Cause I, and uh, by the way, I'm very interested in what I'd like to know is, and just if you could clarify, um, are you saying that, you know, what 
are you saying that what people think about China or, you know, in particular me, are you attributing that to U.S. misinformation? Because if that is the case, I actually get all of my information from, you know, .cn, you know, sites and, and government sites as much as I can. Um, and, you know, and I multiple sources. One thing I don't get my information from is any legacy media, whether it's Fox or NBC, I think they're all the same. Um, that's just, you know, that's just garbage news. And then what I found in the intelligence world is you have to multi-source, and especially with how bad media is, you have to take as much as you can and find some truth, some transparency in the middle of, you know, dozens of overlays of different types of reporting and angles of reporting. But uh, so my question is, are you saying people have it wrong and China doesn't have intentions that as I outlined and that is something that's been created by misinformation of the U S government. I just want to be, I want to make sure that I understood you. Um, yeah, definitely. I would definitely say. Can you give me an example? Can you give me an, well, that's not what I'm saying. I was, you're, is that what you were saying? No. Yes. No. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm agreeing. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm saying yes. That's that's okay. what I'm saying. Yeah. Could you, could you give some examples of that in part specifically with China, where the U.S. government has um, outright, let's say, just thrown propaganda that's not true about China? And real quick, before you do that, well, uh, I do oh. want to get uh, real real quick. We got plenty of time, uh, gentlemen. Uh, we do got still got a couple hours uh, couple hours left on the phone, but. Uh, keep that power dry. Definitely stay going. I do want to hear it, but I do want to bring – I mean, I think it's a good segue because he's in the media. He writes for the Blade. Uh, so I want to uh, bring in you know, our friend uh, Samuel. And thank you very much, Samuel, for uh, coming to the program. And, you know, to talk about the media, what uh, the media is putting out uh, for China. It has been a lot in the news until, of course, Russia. And as, as a member of the media, I mean, what, what type of things uh, are you saying? Hey, well, uh, first off, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Um, just real quick, I, I'm currently at the Federalist these days, um, so I'm no longer with the Blaze. But um, a lot of no, okay, uh, I agree with. There's an update. I, I agree with a lot of. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, so there's an update. Thank you. <laughs> oh no problem, no problem. Um, no, again, thanks for having me. Happy to be here and and all. Um, I, I agree with a good amount of what's been said. Um, you know, I, I think there's this, uh, I, I think the average person really doesn't know what to think about China other than the fact that they're just anxious about the situation. Um, you know, with all that's going on, it, it's pretty, it's pretty evident by China's own words that it's not a matter of if they invade Taiwan, it's a matter of when. And, you know, I know there's an argument that people make that, you know, it already is China, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the average person is, I think, very anxious. If, they, if they're, you know, following the news, they're already kind of weary and worn down of everything that's happened in, in Ukraine and the fact that we're still financing a proxy war over there. Uh, and then when they think of, you know, what could happen in Taiwan in the not-so-distant future, it's just a double dose of, holy crap, here we go again. Um, I think a lot of 
the news coverage about China is not particularly helpful. I think it is meant to kind of just fuel anxieties over the situation. But then again, that's kind of how the whole, you know, corporate news um, makes its money is just fueling, uh, fueling the people's anxiety. Um, I think a lot of the coverage is very much, you know, granted you want the American perspective if you're reading American news, um, but I think it's very kind of myopic in that it doesn't really discuss the sheer magnitude of China's moves in global infrastructure. I know there's been a good talk of a good amount of talk of Belt and Road in this uh, in the just now, and Belt and Road is going to it already has largely, but it's going to entirely reshape the global economy for decades to come for future generations. Uh, there there can really be no mistake that China's end goal is to usurp uh, the global order and put, and make itself hegemon. Um, you know, they're already working on conducting transactions with uh, the renminbi, their, their currency, as the um, as the basis instead of the U.S. dollar, which is the global reserve currency. China, I don't necessarily know if it's accurate to say they want to rule the world, but effectively, if you become the hegemon, that's what you kind of do. But for instance, there's an argument to be made that the, the USA has, you know, quote, unquote, ruled the world since the end of the Cold War, but that's that's a separate conversation. Um, there is a professor at Harvard uh, named Graham Ellison. Allison, sorry. Um, I forget the exact title of this book, but the overall thesis is something that he refers to as the Thucydides trap. And it's this notion that when two superpowers are, you know, become fully aware of one another and are rivals, it's only a matter of time until one either just fails or there is war. If one of these, if one of these entities is trying to permanently undermine or perpetually undermine the other and the other is just trying to hold on to power, there's no outcome that is anything other than one of these two powers failing, either by their either by because it's being undermined, because it just fumbles the ball, or because of, you know, physical confrontation. Um, I'm very receptive to the fact that, you know, we're not necessarily in a kinetic war, um, but we are absolutely in a war of information, a war of commerce, a war of influence. Um, but I know I'm very uh, I'm not very optimistic about the future of this of our relationship with China. I don't see how it ends up with anything other than confrontation, um, especially when they move on Taiwan, because there's 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 no chance that the United States allows the majority of the world's semiconductor manufacturing to fall into the hands of China. If it does we'll either, you know, just sit and tweet our thumbs and end up trying to buy them from China, in which case we'll receive, you know, shoddy products that could potentially risk our national security, or, um, you know, or we'll just 
try and force the manufacturing to return uh, stateside, which isn't a, you know, that's a, that's a decade, that's a multi-decade long feat. There's also, you know, if China takes the semiconductor manufacturing uh, under their, you know, massive economic apparatus, that puts the entirety of the global, the advanced global economy at their mercy. I don't see there's I don't see how there's anything that I don't see how there's any way out of this without massive confrontation on either an economic scale or God forbid a you know military one. And, and I think that's a good uh, and thank you very much. We'll, we'll keep this you know, line up. And I think that's a good segue to go back to uh, you know, Stewart is you know let's see some light at the end of the uh, tunnel so to speak. Uh, you, it seems like I mean we've got you have more of a positive perspective I think of what uh, and, and I think the last question we're gonna I'm gonna ask her tonight is and this will be later on the program you know the world looked like uh, with China as the world's hegemon that, that's a question I want to ask everybody you know, at the end of the show but quick um, yeah again for a more uh, optimistic view uh, I, I think we would get that from from yourself. Uh, Stuart, so go ahead. Uh, I know there were some things you wanted to, that Brian asked about that you were going to answer to. Go ahead. Um, okay. Yeah, let me – let's see if I can touch on that. I mean, first of all, um, I think your name – Samuel, was that the previous speaker's name? Yeah, Samuel, yeah. Or was it Samuel, okay. Yeah, actually, I just wanted to echo one thing that Samuel, you said um, – just to kind of dwell on it for a second, because I think it's really important. It gets to this question of, hub, of hubris, um, because it's actually not just the semiconductor issues that, or you know, issue that control that uh, that China control. You know, control, the fact that China would theoretically control the world's majority of the semiconductors. Um, it's actually a shitload. Um, pardon my French. It's actually a ton of stuff. Um, they control almost all of the um, rare earth uh, minerals that go into um, all the electronic uh, components of like the lithium batteries, a lot of the stuff within the electric cars or um, electric generation capacities. Um, they have, if you include then Russia, Russia with China, um, you get even further things with the question of obviously oil and gas. Um, if you include India, which are people have heard of the BRICS, um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, which took off in 2014, especially um, and India, of course, as well as South Africa refused to, to um, backtrack on their, their friendship with Russia during this recent period. If you include India, then you got steel production. And I'm talking like two thirds to three quarters to up to up over 90% with some of the rare earth minerals are in that either in China or in this group of nations that are increasingly angry at this, um, you know, the dollar, 
financial system and the, the, the sanctions. That's also a huge thing is the sanctions attacks, um, which is, uh, I think you can say very confidently that it's not just an anti-American thing. It's the fact that we've sanctioned so many different countries and, and so more and more countries are saying, okay, I think I'll step away and um, get out of the dollar system. Um, but this, uh, you know, it's not China's fault that they just happened to um, develop the, the capability to process these materials. I don't know. I'm getting an echo from somewhere. Yeah, we're getting an echo. Yeah, we're getting an echo, too. I don't know if you got a speaker on or... I don't. I got headphones. I, it's off now. Okay. Um, anyways, I just think um, I think there's a little bit of like humility, and Trump said this too. You, Trump, Trump said, "I don't blame China for taking away our manufacturing. I blame our own politicians." And I think we should, um, I think we should be a little bit more humble about it. I mean, is it China's fault that we um, shut down our our our, our industries, or that we didn't? maintain our infrastructure, we laid off all of our skilled workers. Is it China's fault that we let a bunch of Wall Street tycoons come in and buy up the machine tool sector in the Midwest, sell off the auto, you know, auto manufacturing sector in Ohio, Michigan, you know, et cetera, um, that we bailed out the biggest criminal financial parasites for the last 12, 13 years? at the expense, you know, inflationary and other expenses of the American people. Is that China's fault? Um, you know, is it China's fault that we're going into green, genocidal, environmentalist policies, shutting down coal, shutting down reliable energy, uh, bankrupting our farmers, prohibiting them from producing food? We want them to produce all this stupid ethanol. You know, so we, we've really done a whole lot more than China ever could have done in their wildest imagination. Even if they were an evil, you know, a bunch of evil people or an evil nation, there's no way they ever could have done a fraction of the damage that our own elites, or what I would actually more precisely call the, the global British empire elites, because that's actually where it came from. It was, you know, anyone that went along with it was a traitor to the U S but this was, this is a, a global imperial or oligarchic system. Um, so anyways, I think that's a really important thing to, to state. Uh, I just wanted to, to kind of go further on what Samuel brought up, because I think that it is not something you're going to lecture China of, say, for example, you know, adopting democratic elections or a two-party system. God forbid I have a damn two-party system. Give me a break. What a you know, what, what wonderful good that's brought us. <laughs> um, or, or, you know, disbanding their military and saying, okay, we'll give up your military and, and, um, and uh, you know, stop, stop expanding your Navy. And, um, and that's, you know, that's what you should do. And no, I, have, I, I think have it's really nice. My issue. thing was making it echo on the show. <clears throat> you get to read it. I think okay, that's, thanks, so anyway, that, that's, that's, that's kind of something I wanted to throw in there, if that's clear. No, yeah, thank you very much. And also, you know, Brian, uh, once you address a few questions, we got Bianchi on the line. Bianchi, we'll get you in after uh, 
Yeah, Samuel, not Samuel. <laughs> After, that's the problem, they have a lot of people. No, it's good, though. Uh, Stuart uh, answers the question for Brian. We'll bring yourself back in, you and Pianchi, and then we'll bring things back to Brian, because I know Kelly's got, you know, sure. uh, more information, more questions for Brian. But go ahead, uh, if you want to answer those, Stuart, and then we'll bring Pianchi yeah, in and, and bring I, it back and, to you, Brian. Oh, sorry, yeah. Yeah, and I just wanted to uh, just address what Stuart said. I agree. I mean, I couldn't agree more that, of course, it's, you know, China would be stupid not to take advantage of the opportunities. And Stuart's right that we've handed them on a silver platter. Um, so, but from a, you know, from a nation state, from a us and them uh, perspective, I don't really care whose fault it is. And I mean that respectfully that, you know, because there's aggression that's been shown, you know, they are, in my opinion, and a lot of opinions, they are a threat to the United States, uh, to United States sovereignty, and to the sovereignty of many, many uh, Western nations. And so how they got there is less important to me. I mean, it's important, of course, but it's less important with, you know, addressing the fact that they are a threat. And I, I do believe that the biggest problem, and to Stewart's point, you know, that, that's gotten to us to where we are at is hubris. A lot of these think tanks really thought they could democ- you know, bring democracy to China and, you know, let's just give them what they need. They're developing. You know, they'll, 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 they'll realize the wisdom of, of Western democracies eventually. That shows a, a gross misunderstanding of, of, you know, Chinese culture, Chinese history. But on top of it, you know, and I do also agree that, you know, these elites within our own country, a lot of them, uh, and I, I'm going to say it just based on, the executive actions that you could just read on whitehouse.gov, our own president, you know, he took a lot of the things that were put in place, you know, or the actions that um, Donald Trump tried to put in place towards the end of his presidency that would put China in check. Um, They were almost instantly taken down. And that's just another example like Stewart had said, and by the way, Stewart, it's Stewart, right? Because I'm getting confused between Samuel and Stewart, so I just want to make sure I'm addressing <laughs> yeah, the right person, Mister Battle. Yeah, great name, by the way, especially for this discussion. Um, but um, what I was going to say is that he's right. I mean, and you know, and you know, forgive me for saying this. I don't know if it was Confucius or Sun Tzu that. You know, one of the major things in, in, in that type of warfare, in their mentality of warfare, is to defeat the enemy with his own sword. And I think they're doing that. Go ahead, Stuart. I didn't mean to, to interrupt you. Oh, that's fine. No, it's great. Um, well, first of all, I just want to say I, um, I, uh, I, I wholeheartedly reject the idea that there's any relevance to the idea of us versus them. I just reject it as a, as a, as an assumption. I don't think that there's, um, I think it's a, I think it's, it's a big assumption that you're making that, 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 that's an automatic, uh, that's an automatic geometry, so to speak. Um, this was, this was very intentionally deployed, uh, from the British and, uh, from people that came from the British school of thought, especially post world war II. There was a guy named William Yandel Elliott, who was a um, who was a very well-known professor. His some of his most well-known students were Henry Kissinger, Zbigniew Brzezinski, 
and Samuel Huntington. Um, uh, Henry Kissinger was uh, a disgusting human being uh, and and a, a very destructive human being. His whole thing, and actually he was wheeled out last week, um, considering the whole situation with uh, Ukraine, with Russia, warning of, uh, you know, a, a global war. But what Kissinger was responsible for, he was responsible for the for the architecture of it because his whole, whole idea was a balance of power. Um, that the only way you can have security, so this is coming out of, you know, or you know, this is in the middle of the, the Cold War, but, you know, coming out of the Cuban Missile Crisis and, um, and whatnot, that the only way you can have security is the balance of power. And this is where mutually assured destruction came from, which is basically we can blow you to, you can, we can blow you up 10 times over. And if you can blow up, blow us up 10 times over, then that's peace, right? If we just have a, a bajillion can, you know, weapons pointed at each other, then that's peace. And it's, it's, it's laughable, but it's also tragic because it's, it's real. It's actually where we still exist in, in the world is a, under constant hair trigger warnings of uh, of annihilation, um, it's not peace, and it's not acceptable for anybody who knows American history and knows uh, what the what the other potential was coming out of World War II, or at least what you know what the the more clear-headed Americans were doing coming out of World War II. But so you had this guy William Yandel Elliott, who trained Kissinger, he trained Brzezinski, who who you know, in a nutshell, was um, not only responsible for some of the more nasty police state um, measures and council on foreign relations and these things, but he was instrumental in the um, uh, what was called the Arc of Crisis, which was funding the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. So it was done in the name of the Great Game. So we were, of course, fighting for, demo- you know, not democracy, but against the Soviets, fighting for freedom and the Western world against the evil Soviets in the 70s and 80s. And so we funded and armed the Mujahideen to get them out of Afghanistan. And what did that, how did that work out for us? You know, talk about hubris. Talk about a failed foreign policy of shooting ourselves, not just in the foot, but in the face, like Dick Cheney style, you know. (laughs) Um, So this is, and, and then, uh, Samuel Huntington, another notable one, wrote The Clash of Civilizations, this famous book that there never, ever will be um, com- communion or any type of collaboration between East and West because they're different civilizations, they're different traditions, different religions, you know, and you'll never have, um, you'll never have any, any universality that can span the differences. Um, it was like the precursor of identity politics. If people want to fixate on the differences and fixate on what makes them, you know, small, as opposed to fixate on the, their human beings. And you might as well get along because you're going to kill each other if you don't. So this, was, this, is, this idea was very heavily deployed coming out of World War II and, and throughout the 20th century. Um, and it wasn't American. It was, it was a British... It was an intentional British um, policy to, to, to 
drive a wedge between any potential collaboration of, you know, I'm not saying Soviets and Stalin and Khrushchev and all these guys were great, but um, not, you know, not at all. Lyndon LaRouche, who I had the privilege of working with, um, heavily attacked the Soviets during those, those years. So I'm not saying they were great, but, um, but this architecture has been set up for us, and the only way to deal with it is to understand it. And I, I acknowledge that in China, as well as Russia, there's a lot of people that are saying exactly this, that are saying if the West wins, we lose. So therefore, we have to win and we have to defeat the West. There are a lot of people saying that. And um, so, but still, you have to get outside of the geometry because if you can't beat that, then this um, this proxy war mentality of we're going to win a little war here, we're going to exert a little bit of influence here, and then China starts thinking the same way, it really is going to lead to nuclear war, um, which I'm very afraid of. And I think that um, it, it should it should uh, move all of us towards figuring out what is the next required step to actually get out of the tragedy. And then I know I, I'll say super briefly, because I know you've asked like three times to respond to Brian's question. Um, <laughs> one example, and I, I, I remember, so um, one example is... You're building uh, up too, right? A guy named... <laughs> <laughs> well, I just really wanted to say that you, it was a couple, you know, things I wanted to respond to. But there was one example of a complete fake over the last um, four years or so. There was a um, there was a big uh, uh, indictment of a of a guy named Charles Lieber, who was a um, Harvard, I think, chemist professor or biology professor, who was working with a Chinese professor who was visiting. I forget his name. It was under what was called the Thousand Talents Program, which is a Chinese initiative to build relations and send researchers abroad. Um, the FBI indicted both of them. They, they detained the Chinese guy. I think I forget what happened to him. But they arrested this guy, Lieber, who is an American. Um, and um, anyways, after it was there three or four years now, the whole thing came out. There was no evidence. The jury was... Um, exonerated him. He was defended by the, all the staff at Harvard, said this is a complete witch hunt. It's a complete political witch hunt by the FBI in order to frame up a non-existent case um, over years, which was hollow, to uh, create public opinion outrage against China for so-called stealing you know, research secrets. And there was just zero. There was zero. It was a complete empty case after, after all these hearings. So that's one example. Well, I, I just want to say on the Lieber case, which I know extremely well, the you know the majority of charges against Lieber were not um, basically you know making known his his, his payments from that Thousand Talents program, um, and Lieber's a deeper character than that. He was working with Robert Langer, one of the co-founders of Moderna. Um, at the Wuhan lab, he was, an, he was like an honorary professor, uh, Lieber was, at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So whether or not they got him on the um, – and, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I do need to follow up on how 
the details of that case with regard to the stealing of secrets. But I will say he was also not doing his financial disclosures appropriately because a lot of the projects he was working on in the U.S. Uh, did receive government funding, and that is a requirement. And let's go ahead real sure, quick. Okay, sorry. I was going to say the evidence that China was stealing anything was, was hollow. That was the key, key allegation. But well, I mean, let's go ahead and bring I, in I'll say like, I, go ahead. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, I just want to we can we can go back to that. Uh but I do want to bring in Pianchi. He's been patiently waiting here uh, to come on. Uh he's got uh, you know, some comments and questions for you guys. And then uh, go ahead, Pianchi. Uh thanks for coming to the show. No, you know what I was gonna say on the issue with the semiconductors. Trump had already negotiated a deal with Taiwan to build a production plant, I believe, in Arizona. And I think that there would be the likely way to go, building the plant, hiring Americans. If not, you still have Texas Instrument and Zetronics and IBM. Why don't they build a facility? The United States can help them subsidize a little whereas we can start becoming dependent on our own nation to produce those key components that's needed. And, you know, as far as, I don't think that the United States will go to war with Russia. I don't really think they're going to go to war with China. It will be an economic war. But uh, something has to be done. Our agriculture is, is vulnerable. I think China's buying up land to grow food to ship back to China like we see North Korea doing in Africa, shipping food back to North Korea. So those are things that you have to contend with. And we're not doing a good job. Eh? As a matter of fact, it seems like we're trying to stymie agriculture production here in the United States with the most recent raid on the Amish who never bother anybody. So I just want to put that out there. Well, I appreciate that, Bianca. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And, uh, Sam, did you want to add anything uh to uh, what was said, and then we'll bring it back to you, Kelly, because I know you got some things you want to uh, ask for Brian if we can continue off discussion. Samuel? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what was just said entirely. Um, there's no way – there is effectively zero reason why we should be dependent on any other nation for certain things. Uh, you know, we, there's no reason why we need to be dependent on Russia or the Saudis for our oil. And there's no reason why we should, should be dependent on China or Taiwan or any other country for any aspect of our manufacturing. Uh, sure, we probably need, might need to import certain, you know, minerals and certain rare metals here and there. <clears throat> but the U.S. is one of the most wealthy countries in the world when it comes to natural resources. And our we are a people who build things, at least we used to be. Granted, I was, you know, I, I was born in 96, so by, by the time I became an adult, our manufacturing was already gutted. But there's no reason why we can't return to our previous manufacturing power. Um, you know, in Ohio, Intel, uh, I know it's, it's been uh, announced that it's been delayed a couple of years, but Intel made a extremely big investment in Ohio to start manufacturing advanced computer parts. Um, there's, 
any future in industrial policy needs to prioritize the empowering of American manufacturing. It's the most effective way for us to get out of the current situation we're in. And it also will, you know, actually empower Americans for once. So Kelly, if you want to, I'd yeah, go on and Kelly, I, again, yeah. some other things. You know, go ahead, Kelly. Well, yeah, I wanted to discuss um, what China is doing. Now, this might just be a a business thing. It might be the best interest of China, or it could be clandestine. You know, I like the terms and think I like to think in terms of options and possibilities. All right. So I looked it up about the international airport in uh, Uganda, and um, I got a bright bar quick thing, and then I'm going to jump over to another news source. Um, but Entebbe, Entebbe is Uganda's only international airport. This airport became famous around the world in '76 when Israeli commandos rescued hundreds of passengers from an airliner seized by Palestinian terrorists and diverted to Entebbe. So if you kind of remember that. All right, here's a paragraph that intrigued me. Several African media sources reported last week that and this is written in uh, Jan, uh, November 30th, 2021. All right, so we're coming up on what, 10 months, 9 months old. Several African media sources reported last week that Uganda officials were frantically attempting to renegotiate toxic clauses in a huge 2015 loan from a Chinese bank that would allow the Chinese government to seize the airport and possibly other Ugandan sovereign assets in the event of a default. Similar clauses have been discovered in loans to other developing nations made under China's BRI infrastructure agreement. BRI, of course, being the Belt and, Belt and Road Initiative. So this is Breitbart, and they also said in the article that at the time that both Ugandan officials and Chinese officials said, no, we haven't seized the airport. Um, but that's November of last year. I want to go to this other article. It's called the Economic Times. And it says, China reportedly takes over Uganda's airport on account of loan default. This is November 28, 2021. And what is yet another move to acquire foreign assets on account of default of loans China allegedly has taken over, the Ugandan Entepi International Airport and other assets in the eastern African country. Ugandan President Yor Yawari Museveni, if I pronounce that right, has sent a delegation to Beijing, to Beijing for renegotiation with the Chinese government. Earlier, the, earlier, the Museveni-led government had signed an agreement with China's Exim Bank to borrow $207 million to expand Entebbe International Airport. The loan had a maturity of period of 20 years, including a seven-year grace period, but it has now appeared that the transaction signed with China's Exim meant Uganda surrendered its only international airport, according to a SaharaReporters.com, a news portal that focuses on Africa. Um, they also <clears throat> state um, a number of countries, some in Africa, have had to forfeit national assets for direct control by China after failing to repay commercial loans signed with haste or without 
proper scrutiny. Now, is this just business? Is this really smart business? Or is it that China is setting up toxic agreements knowing countries will default? They invest, say, $200 million, they get back a billion or whatever that airport is worth. I had a client years ago as an engineer, and he was basically a loan shark. He eventually uh, was taken to court because his interest rates were, were illegally high. People would put up a bunch of change, a chunk of change, and then they make payments, and they would default. And he was complaining, "Oh gosh, I got to go to the title company again, sign these foreclosure papers." He set it up for these people, and these people in the town where he was doing this were not wealthy, and he would foreclose on his mother. So he was setting up a toxic real estate agreement, financing, and he was foreclosing left and right on people, even the poor. Is China doing the same thing, or are they doing smart business? If we're going to interact with China, we certainly need we certainly need a smart businessman, which Trump was, to not just give stuff to China or discount things to China. Here's another article I want to discuss with uh, – this is the National Defense Magazine. Mahara, uh, Japan, China's role in stealing Western companies' intellectual property is well documented. However, not too many of the victims know what the nation does with trade secrets after they are pilfered, a former U.S. government leader said November 19, 19. 2019 article. Quote, China has institutionalized a system that combines legal and illegal means of technology acquisition from abroad, said William Schneider, Jr., former Undersecretary of State for Security Assistance, Science and Technology, and former chair of the Defense Science Board. It is well known that China steals IP or intellectual property and other secrets from industries, academia, and the government, but what is not so well known is how China converts the technology it acquires into their military capabilities, he said at the uh, at the DSEI Japan conference held near Tokyo. So we're starting to see motives here when people are stealing from academia, which is from where some of the, the best amazing technologies come out, industry, industry and other places, not just America but other countries. So that shows some interesting intent, and are they setting up chronically toxic agreements with other nations? Uh, you invest, I don't know, say 30% of a nation's assets. You know, you say there's a some a country wants a billion, has a billion in assets. China sets up a 30 um, million dollar loan with toxic clauses, knowing the country will default or possibly funding terrorists to make them default with the terrorist attract on infrastructure or industry or whatever. So that country defaults, and so they, they triple their money, invest $300 million, $1 billion. Is that what's going on? I don't know. I'd have to really dig deep into this, but just like that guy I knew personally that was a loan shark foreclosing, is this one way for China to acquire assets worldwide? So we have to start looking at motives. Nobody knows the motives of another person's heart, but we can certainly see by actions and by words, uh, verbal words and what is in writing. Um, what is China's motive? 
are they benevolent trade partners or are they malevolent, meaning malicious or with ill intent? We don't know. But I want to ask a question about unrestricted warfare because I really want to get to this part. This is very important to understand if China has certain motives. Unrestricted warfare, okay? Brian, can you tell us about unrestricted warfare? Who wrote it? What is, you know, is is China just trying to feed 1.4 billion people, or do they have other plans? I just turn it over to Brian. What is unrestricted warfare? Sure. So unrestricted warfare is basically viewing every single interaction, you know, as a battlefield, winning the war regardless of how you do it, um, in their own words. And it was written by, um, I'm not a a Chinese linguist, but it's Cao Liang and Wang Yang Siui uh, in 1999. Uh, This was uh, published by the in Beijing by PLA Literature Arts Publishing House, February 1999. Um, what is unrestricted warfare? It's it's best just to list what they list in this document, which and I, I need to state that this document was leaked from China. And now it's published; you can buy it on Amazon. But it was originally leaked. It was published by, um, you know, for the armed forces originally in China, and so. For instance, they list the different – So, and one of the things that uh, – one of the big studies that they did to come up with how to win a war against a bigger enemy, meaning the U.S., the key thing that they studied was um, the Desert Storm War um, because they realized at that point, okay, these guys have us outgunned. They have us outgunned. We're not going to beat them in that type of kinetic warfare because Operation Desert Storm was – by many, you know, warfare experts and people who study and are in that field, considered one of the perfect wars. I mean, it's one of the perfect victories. Um, so they devised a strategy in this text, and I, I recommend everyone read it, um, on how to, you know, how do you whittle down an enemy? How do you make an enemy who's stronger, weaker than you, so when the time is right, you can strike? You know, how do you go about doing this while remaining uh, maintaining the illusion of meekness and weakness yourself as China has tried to do. And they call that deceiving the sky. And so if you look at the, what they list for the types of warfare and, and bear in mind it's 1999. So obviously cyber warfare was a new concept back then, but atomic warfare, diplomatic warfare, financial warfare, conventional or kinetic warfare, network warfare, that refers to uh, not only computer networks, but also uh, infrastructure networks of energy, power, uh, trade warfare, biochemical warfare, intelligence warfare, resource warfare, depleting or getting an enemy to deplete their resources um, to make them weaker, kind of similar to a siege. Um, psychological warfare. This really is about controlling the message, getting a country to turn on itself, getting a country to start doubting its own history, ecological warfare, um, basically salting the earth, um, space warfare. We're seeing huge investments in space technology by the yeah. Chinese, and a lot of it is offensive technology. Um, and then, uh, oh, this, the one that, that really is haunting, economic aid warfare. That's when you – I, you know, surreptitiously encourage a country, whether it's through your contacts or influence, what have you, 
to deplete their own resources in providing economic aid to another country. The first thing that popped in my head when I heard all this rumbling about Ukraine, which has no strategic value for the United States, the Russian army isn't, the Russian military is not big enough to occupy Europe. Uh, it, you know, this whole concept, oh, they're going to take over Europe is ridiculous. Um, so economic aid warfare, tactical warfare, we, you know, it's pretty self-explanatory. Regulatory warfare, that's infiltrating the regulatory bodies of uh, real, the real country. Quick, that, Ryan, real quick, Ryan. So I, I, I apologize for interrupting. I don't know if someone's typing or moving or something in the background because they got everyone's mics open. So if you're doing oh, some I'm background so work, uh, no, that's okay. <laughs> it's just okay. it's just coming through on the uh, the audio. Go ahead. Okay. Um, all right. And then regulatory warfare. Now, what's interesting about regulatory warfare is a lot of that begins at local levels. It doesn't begin at national levels. It begins at the infiltration of a county board, public health, um, those type of things. And I, you know, I'll, I'll post a lot of the uh, documentation of this after this um, this, this uh, show. Um, smuggling warfare basically undermines markets. Um, sanction warfare, that's sanctions. Guerrilla warfare, self-explanatory. They actually list media warfare, taking over the enemy countries media so you can control the message thus supporting psychological warfare um media warfare you know whether you want to call it warfare or just good business deals you know people need to understand that nbc signed a memorandum of cooperation with Xinhua newsnet in 2015 under their ceo steve kappas people should also understand that um the uh, ap signed a memorandum of cooperation coordination of coverage and headlines in 2018. Um, and that's very easy to find, but I'll post it anyways. Um, terrorist warfare, ideological warfare. Our country is great. Your country sucks in, in a nutshell. But the, the one that gets me the most, and the one that really, really, um, I do believe that China is engaging in this right now is drug warfare. And that is when you flood a country with illicit drugs, um, highly addicted, illicit, very dangerous and deadly drugs such as fentanyl um, to put an undue strain on the public health infrastructure of a country. And Wuhan is one of the sole sources of fentanyl, according to the DEA. And the really, really terrifying part of this is when Wuhan did actually conduct a full lockdown of everything, uh, I think I believe it was back in February of 20, um, 2020, um, fentanyl uh, cases, uh, fentanyl emergencies, deaths, they also dropped off at the same time in the U.S. And then once that lifted, they've gone up. And since the Mexican border has been opened, and it is open, um, Fentanyl cases have skyrocketed, according to the DEA website. And so, you know, that, that, that is to answer your question, unrestricted warfare in a nutshell. In my opinion, that's what's being waged. We are at war, and I think it's being waged on us right now. Now, I want to go ahead and bring it over to uh, you, Stuart, and see if you, you, know, if you want to respond to that. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I would just ask, um, I mean, Brian, 
First, um, are you aware of, like, the National Endowment of Democracy and um, some of the uh, uh, operations that we've run going back to the 60s and 70s? Um, as it pertains, I mean, I'm not, but what, how does that, uh, can you just kind of connect it to what we're talking about? Well, I mean, you're saying that China, there's, I mean, it sounds like there was two generals or colonels or colonels. something in China mm-hmm. that wrote, wrote a memo in, in the 90s, 1999, about, you know, all-inclusive warfare. And uh, I'm just asking if you know about the very much all-inclusive warfare that has been announced from the U.S. Uh, 30 and 40 years before that. Um, you know, I'm not, but to me, it, unless, I mean, it still sounds like, and again, I mean all of these things respectfully, um, and I, I do enjoy a good debate, so just if I come across as uh, in any way uh, insulting, please uh, let, let me know, but I, I'm not, and I, I, I certainly uh, respect your work. But what I would say is that, um, to me, like, what about her? Like, it, it, it doesn't really mean that China is not doing this. Okay, but don't you think that if you've got, you know, world where the United States, well, I'll say this, the the former CIA officer said about the National Endowment for Democracy, which is, by the way, not only the biggest, like, human rights aspect of of, uh, our international policy, um, um, but also, yeah, it's it's like the biggest outreach of what we do around the world as far as funding and this kind of stuff goes. The former CIA guy says, well, yeah, we created it so that we we could do stuff that we would not be legally able to do publicly, you know, or officially with the CIA. We had to create a new branch. So, I mean, I just don't know how you can discount the fact that there's been a war on since, uh, you know, for over 75 years. And the Dirty Tricks book was written by the United States and the British. I mean, uh, MI6. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. It might Go have ahead. been, but, I mean, that doesn't, you know, and so, again, I mean, you know, when I was studying, you know, the different as- aspects of, of criminals, victims, in my graduate work, not related to this, of course, um, you know, this is not, you know, the, you're, you're making kind of a criminology type of argument, whereas like, well, they did this because of this or they're forced to, but it, you know, it doesn't matter to me why they're doing it. My point is that they are doing it. And I, too, I, well, I, and I, kinda, I think I know where you're going. Like, you know, maybe we should change so these things, let's say that is the, why they're doing it. And if we change our policies, they'll change theirs. That might be right. That might be wrong. To One of the biggest dangers, I think, in analyzing um, any foreign country, whether friend or foe, is something we learned when I started my intelligence training called mirror imaging. They'll think like we do if we do this, or they think like us. And, and that's, you know, having been to 47 different countries and a lot of tiny conflicts or just areas I wouldn't want to go back to, 
not everyone thinks alike and not everyone buys into that. And, you know, when Kelly was talking about the thefts and, you know, that are well documented, um, it's clear, you, you know, there are people that are wired differently. I have a family member that I would never lend a nickel to because they never pay you back and they steal your wallet. And, you know, that's, you know, I'm not saying that's what China's doing, but what I am saying is, it's my opinion based on my research, based on my experience, not only with China, but with China's satellite countries. It's a different mentality. It's a different wiring. And we are different to the point where we could change everything. They might see it as weakness, and they probably would, and they take advantage of the gap. They would. I don't think they would go back to their corner, and I don't think they have the opt to because they are – they do have a food crisis, and they are getting to that point of desperation. Yeah, sure. Well, I think that China has – I disagree about the desperation question, but that's another subject. Um, frankly, China's had uh, the most rapid growth and productivity gains of any country in the world the last uh, 10, 15 years. And so they've actually made – far more advancements in agricultural science and many other areas as evidenced by their hypersonics um, and how we're several years behind Russia and China in, um, in hypersonics. Um, so I don't think there's really a desperation and I think it's a little bit, um, it's a little grasping at straws to be, to be saying that. Um, but my reason for bringing up the NED, I mean, one, it's, uh, one, it's 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 absolutely crucial to understand the role of um, the Five Eyes intelligence in overthrowing governments, in assassinating leaders, in running regime change, uh, color revolutions. Um, there's a reason that George Soros has been kicked out of numerous countries, um, and his organizations, his Open Society Foundations, um, because he openly finances, he does exactly what you went through in this memo, um, which is funding media organizations, doing financial warfare, financing the opposition party um, to overthrow a government. And um, this policy has uh, fundamentally taken the world in a certain direction, which um, I've obviously made a strong argument that it's a very dangerous and and uh, fascist direction. Um, and I'm obviously an American, and I totally disapprove of what my government has done in my name. Um, but if you don't acknowledge that that's taken place, and, um, and you know, I'm not saying the Chinese are perfect. Uh, I do kind of question the veracity of two lone colonels 23 years ago, um, but fine. Maybe there's some thinking like that in China. Um, the NED and the CIA are definitely well-established, like full-throated support of uh, the U.S. government for going on, you know, six, seven decades now. So I think um, there's definitely a much stronger case to be made as far as that goes. But the main thing is not Again, it's what I, we were saying earlier. I don't, I, I, I fully reject the notion of 
of such a thing as an us versus them, and it's a trap. It's a trap which has been set for all of us to fall into, that, that you start looking into something, you find a level of expertise and a, a, you know, a field that you can really hone in on and kind of, you know, telescopically focus in and, and not take into consideration the context in, you know, in which you're, you're thinking about it. And, and, um, and the walls get closed in around you as far as what you're looking at. And if you don't I mean, recognize I, 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 I respect, the shape I'm of the world. Respectfully, if I may, just so we're clear, um, there's not a single sure. thing that I look at that is um, out of context or zoomed in. And, and really that's not just from my training, but from the way um, I've looked at China. One of the first things that I do with every hypothesis is I try to disprove it. And it's when I cannot disprove it in the context of the world and history. Um, you know, if I cannot disprove it, then I go further into it. So, I mean, just so we're clear, you know, I never look at anything in a vacuum in a tunnel. It's just not even in my instincts to do so. Like, and, and that's why I do, uh, I put a lot of focus on media and, and you're right. There are a lot of people that, that think that way, but you know, bear in mind that, you know, we do, if you look at the economic trend shift, if you look at, like you said, uh, the paying off and the ownership of many of our politicians, these are all aggressive acts. If you look at Operation Fox Hunt being allowed to operate, you know, in this country, when even Obama fully knew about it, the essentially illegal kidnapping of American persons or U.S. persons, um, and bringing them back to China to face financial crimes, for instance, uh, in their words, these are all aggressive acts. And, you know, when, you know, nine out of the 10 things you see that are well-documented and in a lot of cases documented and confirmed by China, um, it's hard to really, you know, say that there's not an us and them when their own words against our president recently I would say respectfully kind of refute the notion that there's not an us in them. They've made it clear. They looked at Nancy Pelosi's ill-timed and I think very disingenuous uh, trip to um, Taiwan as almost an act of war. And, you know, you could go to the MOFA website, uh, mofa.gov.cn and, and read the statements they made. And they're not, you know, they're not hiding. I mean, the thing about a lot of this is I'm not, you know, I and a lot of well, people I work hold, with. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Let me let me I'm just gonna put my hand up after Stuart. I, okay. Yeah. Let me just respond. I I I do respect you. What you're saying. I um. But, I mean, I have to say very strongly that this is just um. There's. Look, there are there are definitely operations being played. I mean, how do you know that these two Chinese colonels from 23 years ago who put out a lone memo are the architects of all Chinese policies since then? Um, You know, if you look at some of the FBI operations in the last four years, um, show you that in almost every case that our intelligence services have used to drum up, you know, this, this conflict, 
that crisis, that indictment, have been used with inside agents to plant something. I'm not saying that's necessarily the case, but if you don't acknowledge – well, hold on a second – if you don't acknowledge that he acknowledged it when when they met when he was VP and they met with Obama he acknowledged it he said yeah we'll we'll stop doing that sorry about that essentially okay well you'll have to tell me about that I'm more referring to you have a very strict specific idea you went into about I think it was called unrestricted warfare and it was a very specific thing but I'm just saying you might want to consider the fact that maybe these could have been plants or it could have been something a little bit more, you know, you can't put that much weight into one leaked memo that, you know, was from these two guys because the way that these things work in the world is that, you know, a lot of times these things are played. And so you have one little thing you can point to, and then that becomes the basis for a whole ideology. Um, If you look at what's happened, I mean, I kind of wrote down a few things you went through. Um, Economic aid warfare. Um, I mean, there is. Have you ever heard of the IMF? <laughs> have you heard of the Confessions of an Economic Hitman? Have you heard well, of I the fact that you know and John I, Perkins? I, 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 nice enough guy, but a lot of the stuff he said in that book was, mm, you know, it's a bit Hollywood. Having been on the inside. Yeah, sure. Of uh, yeah, we we criticized it too. Yeah, sure. But these things are not fake. This is these are real things. I mean, they're. <laughs> The nations were put into debt 10 times, 100 times, you know, some some nations are paying one debt that, you know, was maybe $10 million that has turned into uh, $100 million over the course of 40 years. There's no bigger case of looting through the means of economic warfare than the IMF and the city of London's deployment of it. Um, and the, the, the human rights organizations which have gone around the world in the guise of democracy and human rights that have destroyed governments, they've overthrown governments, they've forced economic policies, which has turned the worst financial predators loose on, you know, relatively poor nations, um, have given up natural resources, prevented the, you know, national development of natural resources. Um, so these things are like, you, you have to know these things as, as a case study of where we live in the 21st century today. Um, and there is no bigger actor than what I'm saying is the, is the globally extended British empire with, <clears throat> excuse me, it's American partners who are, who are saying, I, this is democracy, and anything else is, is authoritarianism. And so, anyway, okay. um, well, I can, I, can I jump in? Uh, yeah, go ahead. So, yeah, go ahead, Great Britain, which I've, I've, yeah, I've studied Great Britain too, and their financiers and the Rothschilds, all that Deutsche Bank, they expand uh, WEF, and they're doing all sorts of things. Uh, some might say, no, nah, China won't do that. But um, we're, we're coming to kind of a crossroads, if you will, because some might want to believe that China is just trying to feed their 1.4 billion people, and some might believe that uh, China has other plans. Now, Congressman Swalwell, Congressman Swalwell, United States Congressman, he had a known Chinese spy working for him. Uh, was he ever disciplined in the least Kel, by the House he, Ethics he Committee? Under, 
Kelly, was she working underneath him? I think she might have been working under the desk. <laughs> under the desk. Anyway, if Chinese spy Fang Fang was her name, a.k.a. Christine Fang, who came here as a college student, if, if Fang Fang got into a congressman's office and obviously a congressman's pants, uh, Brian, how deep do you think the Chinese infiltrators have gotten in? Obviously, we know corporate espionage, but, you know, is it happening in other areas of our government or not? Or what's, what's your thoughts on infiltration? Well, that's, that's a great question. And, um, and, and by the way, um, Samuel, uh, sorry, Stuart, um, you know, when we run out of time, I'm, I'm always happy to talk, talk more about this because I, I want to learn more about where you're coming from. And so if we run out of time, I, I, I certainly will uh, make sure you have my contact info. I'd love to talk to you more. Um, but I would say uh, on, on infiltration, that's, you know, that's a very good question. And let's look at one type of infiltration to start with. Um, and I'll say Confucius Institutes, forgive me, um, it's late here, so I, I forgot the new name of it. They changed it. But a lot of people see the Ivy Leagues and all that. And what people really don't understand about the infiltration that I see, and some people might call it cooperation, but is with the Confucius Institutes, a lot of them are actually at community colleges. And so they infiltrate from the ground up, our government. It starts with the community colleges. Why? Because that's where small business owners go to get uh, additional college. A lot of them do. And that gets you into the local governments, chambers of commerce, and you work your way up. I mean, if you look at Fang, and her name's Christina. You know, I've been calling her Fang Fang for so long. I, I forgot that she had a first name. But um, <laughs> the thing is, and I apologize. I mean, no disrespect to anyone if well, they take that, offense. That's an AKA Christina. I mean, that's an American name. I mean, they don't name <laughs> people Christina in China. <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've met a few Christina's, Lisa's, you name it, even in China. So who knows? But um, the thing is, um, you know, they, so they, they work their way through, through local governments. They work their way up. Okay. And once you, and this is a great question because this is classic, uh, you know, asset recruitment and, um, and Stuart, you touched on that. I mean, maybe they even learned it from us. Maybe they said, hey, they're doing it. We need to do it too. Maybe that's the case, but they're doing it. And they worked their way up into the local governments. And if you look at Fang Fang, she kind of worked her way up on her career. She didn't start at the top. She worked her way up to the top from the bottom. And so that's why I, I always encourage people, look at the local um, local situation. A great example, Bing Lu. You guys familiar with that name? That is the Chinese, uh, he's Chinese-born scientist um, over at UPMC, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, who um, was a, he's about to make a big announcement about something about COVID. Um, I don't think it was about a cure. I think it was about understanding it more. And he was a, he was a data modeler, actually. He was not a, a bioscientist. And three days after that, in 2020, I believe is May 2nd, don't, don't quote me on the date, but it's right within that time frame, he was murdered. And he was murdered by a guy named Hao Gu, who also is a Chinese-born technologist in the same area, who happened to run the local Chinese culture elementary school program. Ten years apart, these guys, and the Pittsburgh police wrote it off as a 
uh, a lover's quarrel, a lover's triangle. And I, I did I did some research, and it turns out that is the fastest murder case close rate the Pittsburgh police have ever had. It, nothing to see here. Um, further, and so that's the, the down in the weeds. But if you, you, you zoom back from that instance, right, and people say it's a conspiracy theory, and it might be. You know, I like I used to call what people now call conspiracy theories hypotheses, and if they turn out to be false, then you move on. Um, now it seems anything that you know goes seems to go against China seems to be a conspiracy theory in, in the mass media and the messaging from the White House. So when I looked at Pittsburgh, if you go back to October of 2019, um, University of Pittsburgh just received a huge deal from their sister city, Wuhan, uh, to run three major multi-billion-dollar medical facilities. Um, coincidence? Maybe. But, you know, those are the things that, that are hard to ignore, and that is direct influence, and the amount of direct flights from Pittsburgh to China is astounding. And so, you know, and, and that's, you know, the, 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 the curse of, you know, I'm also a, a detective. I'm an investigator. I have a license even. Um, the curse of it is it's very rare when you get that one on 100% smoking gun. And you have to be careful. And to Stuart's point, he makes a good point. People do have to be careful that they don't get so focused in that they fall into confirmation bias or you know, seeking only confirmatory evidence. We've seen too much of that. You can literally, uh, the, during the war on terror, on terror for instance, uh, for their name, you know, you could, it was like six degrees to terrorism. And they even had a case um, at one of the intelligence agencies where they had a hard drive and they determined that the space needle was going to get blown up. This person must be a terrorist. But as it turns out, that was an embedded JPEG on every Microsoft system because that's where they're based. Um, so, uh, you know, he's right. you got to look at that. But on the infiltration part, you look at that, and it's just the constant purchasing and, you know, it's the fault of the people taking the money as much. But this is classic asset recruitment uh, where you find someone who can get you access, but not so much access, someone who can get you to the next person who gets you to the next person. And you can do this through consulting agreements where you say, you know, you find someone on LinkedIn, for instance, who has a really big profile and they're constantly updating it. Well, that's the person I'm going to recruit. You know why? They're clearly looking for an audience, and they're not getting it at work. So you give them that audience, and you you do like a Gerson uh, Lehman Group type thing where you say, "I'm not saying anything bad about them. They're, I don't know much about their background." But oh, that's real quick, gentlemen, uh, real quick programming note is that make sure your uh, mics or phones are charged because if uh, you were to accidentally uh, lose the call after the next minute, you will not be able to. Uh, call in. We do have uh, our next and last hour, which we lovingly call Bard's Logic After Dark. Uh, but uh, just make sure that you know all the phones or whatever device you're using to, to talk through uh, is charged. Because if it does get hang up, you unfortunately would not be able to get called back in. But sorry for the interruption. I just want to make that brief programming note. Uh, go ahead. And, and I'll I'll try to wrap this up. Um, the um, oh, no, you know okay. so- we got plenty of time. Okay, so the recruitment process, remember, this, this starts with individuals. Um, and, you know, and my work in competitive intelligence and later counter-competitive intelligence, uh, teaching companies how to spot the insider threat, um, meaning that pissed-off employee or that, 
you know, paid off employee who's going to steal your secrets. A lot of times people don't even realize who they're spying for. So, you know, if I want to back to my, my point there with, I'm going to, I'm going to find that guy on LinkedIn or that girl on LinkedIn and I'm going to call them from a legitimate LLC I set up, and I'm going to say, hey, you know, we want to learn more about this industry. We got to, someone's going to make a big investment in this. Um, you know, we don't want to know really about your company. We don't care. We, but you seem like an expert. I've never seen such a great resume. And normally they'll say, well, I have an NDA. I can't really do that. And you say, oh, that's fine. If you have any colleagues that maybe could help us out, that'd be great. We can only pay 275 an hour, and we could probably only promise three calls a week. Um, but go ahead and, uh, you know, call me back if you change your mind. And they always call back, okay? And, you know, you also target a poorer area of the country, like, you know, a lower-income area of our country. And they call back. And then once you become part of their budget, because now you're paying them, now they're getting um, a huge amount of money for just talking about themselves on the phone for the first three calls because you have to groom them into getting used to providing you information. Well, then – I mean, it could take me less, on average, less than 14 weeks to have live slides, and I'm going to say hypothetically, um, sent, and you can see where people whited out the confidential. So the, the, the point is, once you get someone and once they take that money, well, then you can, and, and unfortunately, Stuart, I can't firm what our government does just because I worked in our government, and I don't want to get in trouble, but let's just say hypothetically, once they take money a few times, at that point, you can reveal who you are, and it doesn't matter because they're screwed. Now you own them, but you continue that positive reinforcement of funding them, and, but they can't really get out of that deal anymore, and then you, then you take it up a notch. Go recruit your friends, and that's how you spread from the ground up in whether it's in off-highway equipment on an international scale, whether it's in food and beverage, you hit them all. You know, de- depends who's paying you. And so in the case of the Chinese, they, Chinese Communist Party and Chinese, uh, you know, intelligence uh, infrastructure, they practice something called a thousand grains of sand, but they collect everything. Actually, their national security law requires every citizen that goes abroad to, to turn in their photos and contacts they made. So basically, and in I think it was the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, in you know the words of that headline, which is a bit sensational, but but really not. Technically, that makes every person in China who goes abroad a spy for their government. Um, why would you put a law like that in place unless you have intentions that go? And like Kelly said, I mean Kelly, I I I tend to agree with you. I just don't have the evidence to back it. So I'm going with the you know food and, and, and resources argument for now. Um, but the point is that's infiltration. You infiltrate every level of a large enemy, so you just never know what you're going to need, whether it's peddling influence, whether it's getting to our schools. You know, if you look at, you know, the way the 1967 Cultural Revolution went in China, you know, history was erased. Um, there was a, a quote, I forgot the historian, where historians jokingly call um, it the People's Republic of Amnesia. I mean, there's so many people in China who don't even know about Tiananmen Square. And so what would China want to infiltrate then? They probably want to infiltrate, oh, I don't know, like digitization of history books. And to get there, you have to first 
you know, blur the history of a country because when a country has no history and nothing to rally behind, that's a weak country. That's a country at war with itself. That's a tender country ripe for, you know, takeover, maybe not in the traditional sense, but they're going to go with it. I mean, you, you roll through Portland right now and look at the graffiti, China, 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 you know, praising it. Uh, you go to, you know, God forbid, TikTok. And yes, I know a lot of these people are put ups and it could be propaganda. I get it. But people, people really think the brand of communism in China is like, you know, in Northern Europe, Northern European socialism. And, and it's not, you know, and they don't realize that because it is a surveillance state and the social credit system is very real. And, you know, I, do fear when I look at the back end of, say, the Excelsior Pass in New York City, which, you know, if you look at the terms of service for the individual, they're not touching anything of yours. They're not sharing your data. But look at the terms of service for the business owners. Um, they're selling all that data, and that's an international network, you know, who can basically track you. And why is tracking important? Because you can basically corral people into spending money at the places that you have an interest in. And I, I will say this, and I'll say this final thing. That's where the infiltration, the motivation comes from, resources, money, and, and how do you get it? Okay, so, you know, for instance, in the social credit system in China, you lose points if you query seven years in Tibet. You don't lose points if you rent Operation Fox Hunt. They made a movie out of it. Um, you, you, you gain points for that. And that happens to be fully you know, produced and owned by the Chinese Communist Party. So the point is the infiltration is very real. You see it everywhere. And whether we let it there or not, whatever their motivations are for infiltrating, it doesn't matter. They're doing it. And, 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 and that's what people, I think, I think the big gap here is, um, and, and I do agree, I think the victimology and the criminology-minded um, studies are very important for the strategic long-term management of the situation we find ourselves in now. But right now we have an acute problem, and that acute problem is if Taiwan falls, this is, in my opinion, going to be a very different world. And, you know, frankly, it scares me. And I keep trying to disprove it every day, and it just I just find more evidence to support it. Let me jump Last in. Last question. Um, Real, 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 real quick jump. question, uh, and, and that, real quick question, Kelly. Then I want to bring in, uh, you know, Stuart and then Samuel. You know, we hear a lot about the social credit system, and I hate to admit, I don't really know much about it. I mean, what can you tell us, you know, about how that works and why is that, and why is that uh, social credit system important? And that was for Sam, right? No, that, that, well, either one of you. I mean, that was for for your, yourself, uh, Brian, or Sam. I mean, Samuel or uh, Stuart. I mean, whoever can answer that. I mean, I'll be honest. I I don't know why. You know, what purpose is it? And I mean, what significance does it have in China? I mean, the amount of the, the points you have in their social point system. Okay, um, Sam, do you do you want it, or do you want me to talk on it? Yeah, I, I'd love to. Uh, yeah, your, your sure. I mean, I can, I can give like my, my understanding of it is that it's, it's meant to reward and punish specific behavior. So, in China, for instance, if you are critical of the uh, CCP, your uh, social credit score will be impacted by that negatively, 
and it'll affect your ability to get like you know train tickets or access to public transit or your the rate on your mortgage or something like that. Um, oh, ESG, okay. ESG is a little different. Oh, I mean, it's, it's very different, um, but it kind of the end goal is the same. The end goal is to um, create infrastructure to shape human behavior um, through financialization of private data. Um, but it's not so much hasn't yet ma uh, manifested in a individual sense. So whereas in China, if, if I personally, you know, go on one of their state-sponsored social media sites and say something negative about the, the People's Liberation Army, that'll impact me directly. Um, right now, it's being used by these financial um, giants like BlackRock and Vanguard to rate other companies with whom they are invested um, to kind of manipulate them into advancing a specific uh, social uh, environmental, social, and governance agenda um, to then corral us. Um, so as of now, it isn't something as nefarious as like going into your, you know, personal records. But you know, it's still pretty nefarious in the sense that it's relying on you know these corporate conglomerates to uh, put the jackboot down on you. And are you referring wow, so to – Wow, so it can affect your credit. You know, I mean, actually being able to buy and, and get things, that's, that's what I was wondering, what, you know, what type of significance it was. Well, right. from what I've seen in China, it, it does affect the individual. I mean, I've been there. I've seen people oh, who no, have yeah. to it, walk. It definitely does. It definitely yeah, does. Sorry if there was some confusion. But, what I yeah, meant is that, like, in America, in America right now, it, it isn't directly affecting – Oh. Right. Like, uh, I, no. I, I, can, I can tweet out, like, I can tweet something that's, you know, anti-Joe Biden or anti-Kamala Harris, and it won't affect my personal credit. Um, but if I were to do that in China, I would effectively be, you know, I would have a lot more uh, both social and economic consequences. I mean, I would wow. agree with you. And it's universal, but you got to look at the case of Mike Lindell, who got yes, the bank. Yes. Uh, some of the, you know, so you see it's almost like they're almost like testing it, you know, and when you oh, no, look sure. at, yeah. And so, and look, I call me skeptical and I, you know, I, I like happy ending movies and, and I'm a positive optimistic guy. Um, I, I do agree with you, Stuart, that, you know, it's not a war where, you know, one should win and one should lose and one's gone forever. I don't agree with that. I do agree with balance of, you know, everyone, you know, everyone follow the rules we agree to and we'll be good. Um, but on the social credit system, I guess what I'm seeing is I'm seeing a lot of reflections of, you know, of the cultural revolutions in China in the 1960s, where we're seeing public apologies or the, um, uh, what are those things called, the sessions, the uh, struggle sessions. The struggle sessions. Um, and, you know, you're seeing those. I mean, that is um, – God, I am, guys, I apologize. I'm having a major brain freeze today. But the uh, the famous uh, ex Marine actor, ex World Wrestling guy, what's his name? He's in oh, John Batty. Cena. Yeah, like John that, Cena. That, that's yeah, John Cena. And he made the decision to do that. But you know, that to me, there's it's, I'm seeing it's almost like a normalization of making apologies for things you, you really shouldn't have to make an apology for, especially 
Um, you know, if he wants to keep his job, and I get it, you know, China's funding a lot of that Fast and Furious movie that he was in. Um, he, he, you know, he made a decision, get fired or, you know. But the point is, it's like with these social credit systems, they don't just slam them on you. They just, they, you know, these type of things come in one piece at a time. Test this, see how they react, pull back, you know, uh, regroup. And we're seeing this more and more. We're seeing the self-censorship, and um, and that self-censorship does get codified into kind of like a digital law almost, where you see people on Twitter who have to write vaccine by putting an at symbol in between the V and the A uh, and the X. Um, you mentioned Moderna, you get kicked off. So I think we're starting to see this kind of rolling our way, and people say, well, I'm not on social media. Well, yeah, that's fine, but... Um, if you've ever run a small business and tried to advertise in the local dime saver, you know, you're going to get blown away by the people who are advertising on social media and doing organic marketing and, and that type of uh, social interaction type marketing. So it, it is a threat and it starts at the social media, but then we've seen other reflections of it where it's almost like the vaccine for a while there. And I, I I'm hoping it's receding a little but we have so many documented cases of people not receiving treatment because they didn't have uh, the vaccine uh, for things they needed. Right. My, oh, go ahead. Like organ transplants. Well, yeah, that's that's a whole other monster. But um, but I hear you. You're right. And um, you know, my my wife was was kicked out of a, a Salem restaurant, and you know, she was waiting for some friends, two state senators, and um, a really great doctor as on his podcast, uh, Doctor Ely. And so she's waiting for them, and she likes a good martini like any one of us, uh, you know, <laughs> older folks, you know. And, um, you know, you know, she's waiting, and she's going to have a martini, and she, she goes in this restaurant. They pretty much muscled her out, so she left. But then, you know, it is my wife, and she, you know, she does believe in civil liberties, and she saw that as wrong, and she wanted, you know, she started taking pictures. They start heckling her, and, and she got it all on video. And, you know, the narrative in the mainstream media was Naomi Wolf, you know, uh, you know, harasses black owned business. And it's like, no, she was asking, and thank God she got on video. She's asking very legitimate questions like, well, you know, you know, these signs are up and throughout our history, people put up signs and people, you know, ask questions about them because they were wrong. And, you know, it's a two class system. And here we are again. So she was very appropriate per the video. I mean, that's what I think. But the point is, it's that once the mentality seeps in, you know, the social credit system becomes a self-licking ice cream cone. Um, surveillance becomes a self-licking ice cream cone. You know, China claims to have 2.5 cameras for every citizen in China. I doubt it. But if you believe it, and I forgot what that, that concept is called, but if you believe it, you're going to act as if you're under surveillance. And that's the danger of a social credit system and I do see, I guess what's really haunting too, you look at like Hickvision, which is based right there in uh, just north of Boston. Um, you know, they're doing all the surveillance equipment for, you know, the re-education camps, and that's a fact. Um, and people seem, people get so normalized into this surveillance state, and, the, and you'll always hear it. You'll always hear, well, I got nothing to hide, right? And we've all heard that. Well, who cares? I got nothing to hide. Well, well, do you? I mean, the thing is, you don't know. Like, if I'm a competitive intelligence analyst and I want to just rape your company of information, you don't know what I'm after. 
I might just be after your friend. Um, or you might be getting corralled into spending money at a certain business because someone who's invested in, say, the vaccine passport wants you to go to this restaurant group, not to any owned by this restaurant group. Uh, they might want you to vote a certain way, so they're going to corral you into, you know, different crowds or different areas, or they're going to make life really hard for you, or they're going to give you bad directions to get to the voting booth. Uh, there's a million – these are all hypothetical, the ones I just mentioned, but that's the danger of it. And if you look at the amount of money that Xi Jinping has allegedly offshored in Cyprus, this man is no communist. This man, in my opinion, he's a criminal, and, and you can quote me on that. Because if you just look at the sheer size and, uh, you know, just over-the-top nature of his dad's grave site, it's the size of a small town. Well, people are starving. Now they say they pulled a lot of people out of poverty. Let's just go back and look about how they changed what poverty is by definition. And, you know, so the point is someone gets rich off all these things. And in, in my opinion, it, always, it comes back to money a lot. Um, I, I don't even know where I started, so I'm, I'm just going to stop. Um, but um, go ahead, and I'll, I'll just hand the mic over. And Kelly, did you have something else you want to bring up? Or uh, before uh, Kelly, did either yourself, uh, yeah, Samuel, I, or Stuart yeah. want to respond to any of that? Well, Kelly, yeah, I uh, – this National Defense well, real quick, magazine, Kelly, I want to – Real, real quick, Kelly, I would just want to see if uh, Samuel or Stewart you know, had any, you know, anything you want to add to that. Sure. Yeah, I'll say uh, something uh, just a little bit uh, just before we change subject. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I I've already kind of said um, I think what what the main what I what I would say. I mean, I think um, I think um, Brian already. Uh, to be honest, I think he already kind of said that he doesn't have any evidence for the things that he is assuming. Um, on the and I'm very credit. on the social credit. No, going back to the last fifteen twenty minutes or so, he you said that you recognize that there's no real evidence, but you believe where there's smoke, there's fire. So um, I, I think you. Um, I said there's no one hundred percent. I think Brian has said himself he really. He's painting a picture. He's stringing together things to paint a picture. Um, I mean, I would, I would actually. In my view, take my words. Okay. Well, you want me to? Do you want me to? Do you want me to say what I'm going to say, or you want to? I I do want to hear it, but I don't want words put in my mouth or assumptions made about what I meant. Well, I think it's pretty clear. I think you've said that there is no way you can know a leader's intention, and that you've said yourself that you um. You you don't have proof for any of these things, but it seems the most likely. Okay, so we'll just have to post the transcript. I didn't say I had no proof for any of these things. That's not what I said, but go on. It's not about the things themselves. It's the overall directionality of what you're painting as far as the historic and kind of, you know, general strategic picture. I mean... I personally disagree with what China is doing with the surveillance state. I think they're doing it. I think they're doing, you know, I think they, they probably shouldn't be doing that. Um, not just because I'm American and 
I have this view, you know, we have a different view of freedom, but I think it's, it's probably um, not the right way to go about their own population from the, from a, from a proper standpoint. Um, With that said, there's differences. Um, I think that's one of the biggest things. Again, I think that's, there really is no, um, there is no exception. Of course, I'm speaking from the standpoint of somebody who's taking responsibility for the future of the world, um, which I believe is a requisite. I believe you can't just be um, a so, so-called quote-unquote objective journalist who looks at problems and looks at facts and then draws objective conclusions because you're looking at very complex situations that inherently imply that you're drawing conclusions about what should or should not be done, not necessarily by anything that is being said, but by implication because of the context and the fact that our government, for example, is currently saying we're at war with Russia and China. So the role of an objective journalist in a situation like this is, you know, is, re- is really kind of a, an abuse of, of, in my view, you should, one should strive to put their mind in the standpoint of what a world leader would do or should do if you, if you ever wish to be able to unwind the complexities of some of these issues. And I think that's, that's, that's what is unfortunately being neglected. As you said, again, you're not even familiar with, for example, the National Endowment for Democracy which is the biggest source of uh, overt criminal activity in the name of, you know, our, our nation for decades, or at least maybe not the biggest. But um, So anyways, that's, that's one thing I would say. I mean, I, I'll just give one story, which I've, I've learned recently, which I think is interesting. Um, Sukarno was the Indonesian president. Um, I think he was a military general before... Um, Indonesia was under Dutch colonial rule for, I think, hundreds of years. And if anyone knows anything about the Dutch, they were far bloodier than the British. They didn't have as much territory as the British, but they were far bloodier. They were just, they were just inhumane. They would sever people's hands for doing something wrong. Apparently in Indonesia, they, they didn't even allow people to point you were you were so subservient. You you were you were made to to use your foot to indicate a direction. Um, anyways, when the Japanese began expanding before you know before leading up and into World War II, um, Sukarno saw this as an opportunity to to use the Japanese fascists to educate and train the Indonesian people who are basically slaves. They're basically Dutch slaves. They, you know, they were so subservient, they never were going to be able to fight for their freedom. Um, So Sukarno worked with the Japanese, worked with the fascist Japanese to overthrow the Dutch and used their military expertise to train the Indonesians because they knew that one day the... um, you know, the Dutch would come back, of course, after the war. Um, so, you know, Sukarno was called a fascist collaborator, you know, collaborationist. He, um, 
you know, he, of course, met with the Soviets, so he was called all kinds of things during the Cold War as far as these things go. But if you were to, you know, that's that's the line. If you, if you Google Wikipedia, Sukarno, that's what they say. He was a fascist collaborationist and, you know, extreme radical nationalist and communist and all these things which he was not. Unless you're an idiot who believes the geopolitical blinders put on by, you know, 75 years of, of, of geo, British geopolitical um, narrative, which is, which has never been stronger than it is in the last few years in the United States. Um, I'm sure Brian knows that, but um, Sukarno was not that. And if you don't understand the actual differences in historical processes that would lead somebody, a, a strict nationalist who loved his nation, who loved his people, who hated the Dutch and wanted freedom, if you didn't understand that process, then you would never really understand what's going on. And you would, you could, you could study every piece of literature about, you know, this and the other thing relating to Indonesia and the 40s, 50s, and 60s, but you would never really grasp the truth. And so that's what I would just say. I think that this whole discussion needs to actually have that incorporated because, you you know, otherwise, for example, this whole thing on China or, like I said, Ukraine, which I think is the exact same operation, um, people don't see it as the exact same operation that was done against Trump to corrupt the United States away from being its historical mission of seeking peace and rejecting the us versus them mentality, which has always been the British Empire's game to to divide and conquer, um, and instead fall for these kind of traps, which, which are definitely all around us. So that's what I'd say. This is really bad timing. I've been sitting outside my host's house <laughs> for this whole discussion, um, and I, I will say this, anyone, and I know you're not, Stuart, um, anyone that gets anything from Wikipedia is an idiot. Um, you know, that's, let's just put that out there. Um, or any, I mean, look, I, I always say go for the primary as much as you can. Um, and I, I want to stick around here more of Sam's thoughts because I, I don't think he's really had a chance to really talk here because I do want to hear more about the media influence. Uh, I will say this, um, you, and what I'm noticing, there is a pattern. I'm not saying you have it, but I am saying, you know, my own uh, fam a family member of mine that recently graduated from, from Princeton told me that China is a problem, but it's way over there. You'd mentioned the International Monetary Fund. And you know, there's there's 2018 investigation showing that China has undue influence at the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the WTO, the WHO, um, and I'm, I'm happy to share all of these reports with you. And they're not they're not media reports, but so to my point is I I just feel that and maybe I'm misreading you, but I I do feel and I've seen this many times where people think of China as this other problem, we have these other problems, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm right, but I see it all as interconnected as a problem. I, I don't think China plans on sharing the world with the Davos crowd, as everyone likes to think, because they're nationalists. That makes no sense. Um, but I will say, and, and look, I think the important point 
that you kind of touched on here is you really got to be careful with your sources. You really do because, you know, obviously you know a lot about the history there with Indonesia, um, but I could see where someone, even an educated person, if they start – and we see this now, okay? We see this now, whether it's politics, whether it's um, social unrest, whether it's, you know, people's, you know, the vaccines, for instance. Um, you just see, you, you know, what do you believe when you're surrounded by multi-sources, multiple sources saying one thing and – you find stuff that's extremely credible saying a completely other thing, you start doubting yourself. Take, for instance, the vaccine confidence program, and I'm not shifting gears here. Um, you know, that's a multi-leveled covert influence program that started when the CARES Act was signed in March 2021, where they even talk about influencing teachers, pediatricians, uh, even the graffiti on, on the walls to you know, encourage people to wear masks and, and get the vaccine and, and don't question anything. Um, and, that you know, that's, you know, quick search across a, any site, colon, gov, you're going to find that stuff. Um, CDC has guidance on how to do it. Um, so, but you, you do make an important point, and I'm glad you brought it up. And, you know, I'd love to, again, I, I'm sincere when I said I'd love to talk to you more, because I, I do want to understand how you arrived at um, – your, you know, your your opinions and your, you know, well-informed opinions on on China, for instance, and you know, I'd like to, you know, I'd like you to understand more, you know, where I arrived at mine, because you know, somewhere in there, I I, I do believe this. This is the optimist in me. We're going to find some common ground, and I think that's where real good positive change can be made, um, is when we say, oh, we have that aha moment, and um, and so I'm always willing to. Um, listen and change, um, you know, even if you, you know, at least listen, you know, and if the evidence outweighs what I have, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a good investigator. I'll say, Hey, you know what? I got that wrong. So anytime uh, I would like to, and that's on challenge. That is an invitation, um, you know, from a guy, I do respect you and I respect your work. And I, I would like to learn more about how you, you arrive at your conclusions. And again, uh, share with you how I arrive at mine. Um, but with that said, um, you know, I'm going to stick around for a little while. And, guys, I hate to cut and run early, and I hope you don't mind. I just – I don't want to be rude. My, my my son was sleeping in the SUV behind me during this. So, um, But, um, Sam, I, I really – and if you guys don't mind me asking Sam this, uh, you'd mentioned the media influence of China. And from you being a media uh, professional, I, I would love to hear – I know a lot about it, but I want to hear it from you know someone who's in that field. Uh, yeah. Um, well, so currently I work in um, editorial, um, so I see a I see a decent amount of what you know just common people, for lack of a better term, kind of think about it. Um, but from what I've my perspective on how corporate media has handled it um, is very recklessly. Um, you know, you're supposed to cover things from a perspective of not apathy, but you're not involved. You're not supposed to put yourself at the center of the story. And when it comes to things very specifically, I mean, you know, granted I've, you know, come of age in an era where literally everything is just hyper-partisan. Um, 
but as of late, um, the things like the Ukraine-Russia uh, conflict and with China, um, as temperatures rise, uh, corporate media coverage just becomes increasingly reckless of it. On it, um, it's less so about disseminating facts on the ground, disseminating you know dispassionate evidence. It's more holy crap, this is happening, here's how it could impact your 401k. Um, you know, for, for instance, with the Ukraine-Russia conflict, it's dang near impossible just to find how many casualties there have been, how many, you know, Russians have died, how many Ukrainians have died, how many civilian casualties there have been. Um, and that's largely, you know, because of, you know, Western antipathy towards, uh, well, in, in, my, in my opinion, I think that um, a big part of the response, the American response to this conflict is delayed gratification for the perceived, uh, for the Russia collusion hoax. I think people, especially a lot of um, champagne liberals are trying to exact their personal vendettas through their coverage. Um, but it just goes to show how reckless the corporate media is when it comes to covering things like China or Ukraine. Um, specifically, again, with China, um, it's very economic-focused. Um, like, how can X affect your savings? How can it affect your retirement plans? Things like that. Um, you know, when Pelosi went over, um, I think like a week, uh, like two weeks ago at this point, or no, probably, probably longer than that. I forget the exact timeline. Um, you know, granted, the Chinese Chinese officials did kind of like say, "Hey, you do this, we might shoot you out of the sky." So I think I think it's justified to be a little like on edge at that. Um, but again, it wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of accurate coverage of it from the corporate media. We didn't find out about her son joining the um, the delegation and speaking with financial advisors until alternative people on Twitter found it or until, you know, non-corporate media covered it. Um, I think a big part of that is the fact that uh, there's so much Chinese influence in all, basically all of our corporate world at this point. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm very, you know, like I said at the, at the top of the show, it's, it's very much a, one of the biggest parts of this conflict right now is just the throttling of accurate information. Um, you know, if <laughs> I hate to joke about it, but you know, if China invades Taiwan, you'll find out why Donald Trump is the cause of it before you find out that why it actually happened. Yeah, that's uh, that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Somehow the the corporate media will find a way to blame to blame Trump. Even though there was no no new wars or, or conflicts or proxy wars while he was in office, I'm sure those uh, you know they they don't really want to admit that. Now, one of the things I know you got to go soon, uh, Brian. We certainly appreciate you coming on the show. We definitely want to have everyone here back. And uh, I began in the beginning of the show uh, stating, you know, yeah, a hypothetical of what does or what would no, not does. Or what the world look like if China were to become, as some contend, 
that they want to do uh, the world's hegemon. And so, uh, since you got, I know you got to uh, go soon, Brian. I'd like to get your take on that. Um, my phone picked up the Bluetooth, so I missed the middle of your question. Could you just repeat that really uh, quickly? Sure. It's just, what do you believe the world would look like if China were to become, uh, as some contend they want to do, the world hegemon? Well, I think that a lot of that depends on, you know, who you are um, in terms of where you stand in the social order and who you are, where you stand in, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, where you stand, you know, what your ethnicity is. Um, it's a big subject to go into, but, you know, that's a big part of it. But what would it look like? I mean, I think at best it would look like that, um, kind of like that episode of Black Mirror where the lady by the end of the episode lost so many, you know, friend points that she can't rent a car. Um, and I think that's the best case scenario. Worst case scenario, I see really, really bad things. I mean, I see forced medicine. I see, you know, uh, struggle sessions taken up to the max, but not, you know, and not for ideological reasons. I see it for endangering people's profits, endangering people's political power. So I see, yeah, I mean, imagine a world where you have no rights. I can. I've been to those countries, and it's horrible. And then Stuart made a great example of that with you know, some of the oppression that's been seen historically throughout Southeast Asia in some parts. Um, so what I see is not choosing your career, not having aspirations uh, because you have no say in it, um, and not having an optimistic outlook of the future. And I think when you lose that in a people, you lose – a collective, oh, not collective, but you lose the creativity that creates innovation. And when, why bother? Because I have no choice anyway. So when you take away the state of the people, I think we're going to see a very gray future with no forward progress. Well, I really appreciate uh, you know, your input. And you know, we'll leave it uh, over to the same question to everybody. And so how about, uh, how about you, uh, Stuart? Um, yeah, well, look, I actually think it's far worse um, than what Brian said, or probably what even you said, Robert, and people are thinking. I mean, I think um, the, uh, but it's not a question of does China invade Taiwan. It's um, it's a question of a new of an end of an era. Uh, I mean, I think it's I think it's uh, we're clearly at an end of an era. I mean, the the uh, what is the name uh, prime minister or president Orban? I forget which, which he is um, of Hungary said this last week that um, this Ukraine war, whenever the Ukraine war is over is also going to end the era of Western supremacy. Um, and uh, again, I don't think that's China's doing. I think that's, that, that's our own doing. And it's because the, um, the transatlantic, financial system is bankrupt and it's been heading this way for years. Um, the, uh, the bailouts have just been the tail end of, of the bankruptcy of the system. And that can go one of two ways. And again, this is why I've been saying you have to conceive of, of a, of a way out. Um, you know, at least, at least it'd be ideal to do that. But um, because if we try to save the system or we try to 
like Samuel said, try to stop others from rising above us where we're clearly failing. The, the, the financial architecture is not a capitalist system that's failing. It's a criminal, bankrupt, speculative bubble, which is consuming the American people and, you know, anything else that touches. Um, if we let that happen and we try to prevent others or we get angry at others who aren't so excited about going down on the sinking ship with us, <clears throat> then it's going to be World War III. Um, that's what I'm worried about. I'm worried about us being so connected to our little slice of the universe, which is currently a sinking Titanic, that we're uh, dumb enough to to launch a World War III, where clearly if you ever were going to have a way out, you have to work with Russia and China, the U.S. and Russia and China, and India as well. Um, and others, but especially these three have to come together at some point and 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 have appreciation for me, their mutual sovereignty as nations, not in a who's the who's the hegemon with this chunk of the world, but a new era where it's not the the right of the of the financial few who can screw everybody else over but actually a, a commitment to, to develop. Um, so if, if, you know, I just, I just can't, there, there is no other conceivable solution unless you've accepted cynically that we're just, you know, defending our little pie here from all those other crazy communists or whatever, which is, um, which is not good. Um, <laughs> it's not a good state of mind to be in. It probably induces a little bit of uh, excess, uh, you know, excess fears and, and demoralization, which, which you should free yourself from and recognize our enemy is not China, nor is it Russia. It's not even the liberal lunatics. Um, our enemy is, a, is, a, is an oligarchic system, which is, which is intent on pitting as many of us in as many different parts of the world against each other to prevent there being an actual era of, of cooperation and sovereign nation states. Um, so I think, I think that's where we are. And uh, it is a very dangerous period. And the Taiwan thing could trigger something very bad. And we have a lot of ideologues. You know, John Kennedy had people that wanted him to bomb um, Cuba. Almost the entire military command wanted Kennedy to bomb Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And if it wasn't for him and his brother largely, um, you know, we'd be in a, we, would not, we probably wouldn't be here. Um, and that's, I think, increasingly the situation where, you, where you, we've got to acknowledge it's not about who's right and who's wrong. It's about who wants to live and what what is required to change the the geometry if we're going to come out of this. So that's what I'd say. Well, I certainly appreciate it. I certainly appreciate your time. I definitely want to have, uh, you know, these discussions again. This is certainly a topic that try not ever, at least not for quite some time to go, you know, away. And I, you know, I, I, I like the worldview that I see, um, you know, that yourself and the, uh, the Russian organization at Vision, I just don't 
I just don't have a lot of faith that that's going to happen. I, I mean, it'd be nice if we could all work, you know, you know, work together, um, you know, the way that you guys envision. I just don't know if that's actually the reality of it. Uh, but let's go ahead and hopefully, but, you know, we'll see. Maybe if we get enough people to work towards those ends, it, it, could, it could be a possibility. But let's go ahead and bring it over to you, Samuel. Again, same question is, you know, what would you think the world would look like if uh, China were indeed to become the world's hegemon, basically take uh, the United States spot? Well, <laughs> um, I don't think it looks good. Um, you know, I, I think there is so there's a lot. I don't want to be that guy who you know brings up Hitler, but there's a lot of similarities between the Chinese Communist Party and Nazi Germany. Um, I think if I, I don't think. China wants an outright military conflict. I think they just want to, you know, just by a thousand paper cuts, the um, established world order and, you know, insert themselves. Um, You know, I I certainly agree um, that our greatest threat is, you know, the, the oligarchy that said it would be a good idea to marginally increase GDP while we've got in our entire industrial um, infrastructure, um, and I think in order to combat the rising tide of China, we have to much more act, like address what's going on within our own house. We have to, you know, you, you can't fight a battle that is existential when you yourself are having a, an existential crisis. Um, but you know, fast forward, you know, 30, 50 years on the current trajectory, um, if China becomes the hegemon, I think they will basically hijack, not hijack because they would have probably have legitimately achieved this goal, um, but they would have complete and utter control, if not near complete and utter control of global economic infrastructure. Um, you know, every single rare mineral or rare metal mining operation would be owned by the Chinese Communist Party. Every major rail system um, connecting continents, you know, from Asia to Europe, from from the Middle East to Africa, from Africa, Northern Africa to Southern Europe, I think all the infrastructure, all that rail, all those ports, um, airports even will be owned by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, you know, the Chinese Communist Party's priority is the solidarity of their people, the empowerment of their people, and ensuring their strength for uh, you know eternity, essentially. Um, and I think they know that a head-to-head conflict in a kinetic war with the United States and its allies, uh, nominal allies at least, won't end well for them. Um, they know that a nuclear war, an all-out nuclear war, would make the world uninhabitable for us and them. Um, so I think the Chinese you know, uh, replacing us as hegemon would be a largely bloodless phenomenon 
uh, in the sense there wouldn't be, you know, a war, but there'd be lots of lives lost as they continue to flood us with fentanyl and other drugs to weaken us. There'd be lives lost to, you know, just for every, I think it's every 1% or there's, there's some statistic where for every X percent, the unemployment rate goes up, so many people die. Um, I think we would lose people in that sense um, because our economy would just, you know, circle the drain. That's how they'd be able to really, you know, off us, if you will. Um, I think China as hegemon means the U.S. is weak um, because, yes, our greatest threat is the, the um, malicious oligarchy that controls every aspect of our country. Um, but, you know, China doesn't want to have a rival who is a close second, close in second place. They want to be at the very top of the mountain, and everyone else is looking up and knows there's a mountain, but they can't climb it. Well, and I definitely, uh, uh, we've got about uh, seven minutes or less before I have to close things out. Um, so definitely want to continue uh, the conversation, especially since this one ended in a little bit of a bleak way. But yeah, I mean those those are the uh, the circumstances that we have facing us. Not that it's inevitable, but it, it does look like we are getting you know closer to something like that. Uh, but Kelly, uh, we'll leave uh, you as the last to do the closing comments uh, for this evening before I'll have to uh, close things out. I uh, certainly appreciate uh, everyone coming in uh, uh, for tonight's show. Definitely very informative, and, and definitely there's still so much to uh, to cover. Uh, just by going off of what you know, we only had uh, prepared, we, I think we only got maybe through uh, half of it. So, uh, and again, this is not, this isn't going to be a situation that's going away. But and I think to not have it look as bleak as some of us think it may, uh, we, we definitely got our work cut out for us. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. But let's go ahead, go ahead, Kelly. All right. <clears throat> the question posed to all of us is, what would the world look like if Chinese was, was the uh, hegemon or the world power, if you will? Um, but I, I did want to read something to you from National Defense Magazine. Schneider, who worked for the Secretary of State's office, he said, he wrote, in addition, a 2014 law was passed in China, requires any Chinese citizen to cooperate with Chinese intelligence services. There are currently 350,000 Chinese students in the, United, in the U.S. universities. So 350,000 students that, well, by law, the, they have to give their intel, whatever they learned of their master's thesis or their Ph.D. thesis. That's just really interesting. Um, also, if the Chinese are treating their people horribly or not so well, if they become the hegemon, how are they going to treat the rest of the world? But I, the question, hegemon, what will the world look like? Okay. Well, what type of level? Are we talking uh, financial takeover with the BRIC treaty and a gold-backed currency? Are you talking about a soft takeover where somehow we get ourselves into a position where we have to be voluntarily subservient to China? Or three, are we talking about a kinetic takeover with a war? Well, of course... <clears throat> I don't really see a kinetic takeover of the world. Well, let's start with a financial takeover. Actually, this is a surprise. They go to a gold standard, 
and no longer is the United States the reserve currency. You know, the BRIC treaty with the gold-backed currency, long-term, that's going to be good for everybody as long as China stays with the gold standard. You won't have these booms and these busts and these recessions um, with a gold-backed standard. So that's kind of a surprise but financial takeover. However, in the short term, when the world um, evacuates from the petrodollar or the United States-backed currency, if, if we're no longer the world currency and we switch to China, we are going to have terrible inflation, and it's going to be very difficult number of years for the United States. Worldwide, it could could be. could be a good thing. becomes a financial hegemon. Now, a soft takeover – Suppose we sign some deal with China, with China, and it's a toxic agreement. It's not going to be fun for us, but at least I think we would keep our political system. When we have a political system with trial by jury, guess what? Your neighbors on the jury protect you. Um, trial by jury has protected political reformers for centuries. You know, from Great Britain over to here, trial by jury is an incredible thing. As long as we keep trial by jury and a few other things and our political sovereignty, even though we might be turned into a soft slave, that could be not – I mean, I think we'd be okay on a number of things. But with a kinetic hard takeover, you get rid of due process, the Constitution, trial by jury. It, life is going to be absolutely miserable here, probably the rest of the world. I mean, again, how – is China treating its own people, why would they treat the rest of the world any better? So that's my thoughts to answer the question, what would the world look like if China was the hegemon? A person has to look at it from different angles, different aspects. So I really appreciate uh, uh, Stuart and Samuel coming on and, and, and uh, Brian, of course, and maybe we can pick this up another day. And with that, um, I guess I'm signing off. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, it would be great to have someone who, you know, of course, doesn't live in China now. If they told us what they really felt, they probably would get in a lot of trouble. Uh, but it would be interesting to, you know, have a conversation with someone who's lived the majority of their life there uh, to give us, you know, a, a first-hand account of what it is like living in China. And, and I think you make a great point. Um, you know, it wouldn't be quite the what they're living. It probably would be around worse uh, because, yeah, as you said, why would they treat the other people better than their own uh, citizens? But I do want to, unfortunately, have to close things out uh, for this evening. Again, I want to thank everyone for coming on to the show. Certainly look out for other episodes that we'll have on and other invites for uh, everyone to come to the show. Uh, working on getting uh, Carrie Lake back on. Uh, I know she recently won her primary uh, to run for governor in Arizona. So we're uh, working on her. I've got some uh, other folks uh, that I've been reaching out to uh, from different organizations. And, of course, we'll be talking about the current events. I know uh, some of the things going up with the election, we'll be talking, you know, a lot about that, of course, with the, uh, the midterms coming up. And we're certainly going to be talking more about what happens uh you know, with the whole Trump raid, the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, what, what may come from that, especially if, if an indictment actually come down, uh, what would that mean for well, pretty much everything? 
So anyway, uh, thank you again, uh, folks, but I will have to uh, close out tonight, as I do every night, and that is with uh, the song by Aubrey Ashford. And we will see you all next time. Take care and good night. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Have a good night, y'all. Thank you.